Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as part of the Now Playing Network. In each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director. We look at their breakout films, career touchstones, personal labors of love, and hidden gems amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us on the film journey, where this week we're taking a look at the films of Sofia Coppola, known in Hollywood as The Good One. <laughs> uh, joining us to take a look over at Sophia's work is a very special guest, uh, one the hardest working person I've ever seen when it comes to improving and showing enthusiasm for discussion about film. She's a founder of the long-running movie meetup group, the Chicago Film Lover Exchange, mm-hmm. and she's moved on that from there into the world of podcasting mm-hmm. with Fresh Perspective one of the other fine shows on the Now Play Network, and Film Punch, which does immediate first impressions right after seeing notable films. Mm-hmm. She has set up a podcast and essay series called Movie of the Week that she's hosted with Mira Brady and Fresh Perspective's own Jeff Brightman, and she's done a YouTube roundtable film discussion project, <laughs> one that will be coming back later this year. I don't know anyone who's put more effort into giving people more enthusiasm toward the great things about movies. And I'm glad to have on the podcast Rebecca Martin. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Al and Brad. I am really happy to be here, especially because we're going to be talking about my favorite director of all time. Um, but yeah, it's funny you name all the, or you list all the things that I've done for film stuff, and it, I'm like kind of exhausted just listening to it. Um, But I think it's because I love film so much and I love talking about movies that it's kind of just always been my thing and my passion. And so any way that I could do that, you know, I just try to make it happen. I found it exhausting sometimes when I would look at the list of events for the meetup for the Chicago Film Lover Exchange and there would be discussions on films and uh, viewings of films with discussions afterwards and they were on a level of like multiple times per week and mm-hmm. which is all the more amazing because unlike the film discussion group with me and which me and Brad are a part of, that for a long time this was something that you were doing on your own and yes. you, had, you found a great group of assistant organizers mm-hmm. to help carry the torch on the group but the amount of effort you were able to put on that was astounding to witness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now you've shifted uh, a lot to podcasting. Yes. So what's uh, the latest on Fresh Perspectives? Yes. What movies so have you been talking about? We just did our theme for um, talking about American films directed by non-Americans. So we talked about American Honey, directed by Andrea Arnold, who's from, who's British, and then we talked about Paris, Texas, which is directed by the German director, Wim Wenders. And uh, both episodes, I think, went really well. And our next is musicals. We're going to be talking about Singing in the Rain. And our guest host is going to be um, Brian Thompson and Shay Filer. They have a, they're, they've just joined the Now Playing Network, and their podcast is called Drinking at the Movies. Ah. So they pretty much, you know, just get a little intoxicated and talk about films. But yeah, they know their stuff as well, so I'm really excited to have them on. They that is a procedure that would have been really invaluable for the Zhilovsky podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we are uh, today going to be discussing one of your absolute favorite, yes. if, if not... 
your very favorite. Yes. So what is it about Sofia Coppola that puts her at the top of your list? Uh, she, okay, so I saw Lost in Translation when I was in college, and that was like 2003, and I, I think I just... The movie spoke to me in a way that no other film has ever in terms of like visual Bill Murray is it a you know just the whole Tokyo experience through the eye of beauty I guess and when I saw that Sofia Coppola had directed it I'm like who's this lady directing a film and you know the more I read about her the more I'm like She's awesome. Like, I mean, I knew, of course, she was the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, but I didn't know anything besides that. So when I, you know, learned about her script writing and the way that she goes at filmmaking, I just that it was kind of like my gateway drug into the film lover scene. Um, And it was like after that, I just couldn't you know, shake, shake films, I guess. Like, you know, I started going to festivals, like I was really active with all film stuff. So yeah, she's definitely an inspiration. Yes. And she, of course, as you mentioned, is, uh, the daughter of Francis yes. Coppola with uh, yes. quite the impressive resume himself. Uh-huh. And she started very early. Uh, she was the baby who was baptized uh, at the end of The Godfather. Yeah. So that explains Michael's conversion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing, great thing about Sophia is that she really learned a lot from her father um, in terms of, like, making things happen. Um, you know, sometimes she didn't have, like, production companies behind her in her films. And, you know, her father's advice... Is was just make it, just make it happen. If you're passionate about it, then people will follow. And so she kind of used that as like her guide to making movies because she's, you could tell just watching all of her films that she's very passionate about the subject and, you know, she explores it in such a beautiful way. Right, and she had both the, the advantages and disadvantages of uh, growing up a celebrity. Obviously, being Francis Ford Coppola's daughter opened a lot of doors mm-hmm. for her, but also uh, caused her, uh, you know, her first big controversy, which is when uh, The Godfather Part Three came out and mm-hmm. she did her uh, part as an actor uh, playing Michael's daughter. Yeah. And it was pretty much a consensus, which I pretty much agree with that uh-huh. acting was really not, not her thing. strong point but of, <laughs> of course people just tore her apart over it and so when we see now what kind of directorial career she's going to build out of that mm-hmm. it, it really is a, a comeback story mm. yeah for sure she she went she took the right path mm-hmm. for sure i have to just say just super cool rebecca to find that that Lost in Translation was your gateway film. Oh, it's yes. Like, it's yes. Isn't it really just amazing when you have like that film, which uh-huh, like, like uh-huh. opens the door for you and gets you to go, oh, my God, this films can be just so much more than just being able to just have, have a story that you follow with some characters for two hours. Right. But they can be so much more depth. And- yeah. And, you know, we'll get into this of the Lost in Translation yeah. part, but, uh, I mean, the relationship between... Bill Murray, Bill mm-hmm. Murray, and Scarlett Johansson. 
I've never seen that kind of relationship done, but we'll we'll talk about that. Yes, when we yes, get to that, that's translation. right. But yes, but all I would like to add right now about about the film is that it ties into what Brad was bringing up, which was that I very much have a kind of negative impression about the kind of nepotism in in the arts, like in the music industry and the film industry, and I also shared the general consensus about uh, Sophia's acting in in Godfather Three, which do. To be fair to her, she'd not really done a lot of other acting no. up to that point, mm-hmm. and she she there was a little bit of scapegoating going on about that to say, oh, the, she was made an example of why Godfather Three should have not been made. Well, when really it That's was not... her her father uh, should have known not to cast an inexperienced actress. Yeah, but in she wasn't a, the main mm-hmm. choice. Winona Ryder was supposed to be. Her character, but she backed out right mm. away. So Sophia was uh, a fill-in. See, so it's even more like unfair. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but then I, when I had found that like she had made these, uh, she started a film career as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had heard about it, but I had not seen her first movie until Lost in Translation, mm-hmm. and which like I was astounded by what I saw because this what I saw was like a director who had a specific vision mm-hmm. and it was so distinct from the, Im- the impressions that her father had made in his films and I was like oh wait a minute she is a very she is a unique creative voice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that's what got me to be interested in her work uh, from then on but that's obviously not her first uh, no. uh film and her first notable work we that we can get into is a short film that she did called Lick the Star yes. in 1998. Uh-huh. It's about a group of girls led by um, a girl named Chloe who talk about a plan to poison the girls at their high school. Poison with, the boys. Ah, yes, that's right. <laughs> who talk about their plan to poison the boys at their high school with arsenic. But a chance remark upends the social order of the clique they're a part of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a short uh, black and white film uh, that goes and looks at an atmosphere that's until maybe Heather's is not had not been really explored that much um, with the idea of girls and their their relationships, the the cliques they form, the little social orders that form among them, and. Um, how those uh, shift and change and are used. Right. So here's what I think about the film. Being Sophia's first work, she's awesome at it. Like this, in terms of like first film ever. Um, the acting is so-so. Um, but the visual, like she's always great at, is amazing. Um, you know, uh, Brad and I were watching, I don't know if I can mention this, but with a, a YouTube video talking about the openings and the closings of all Sophia's films. Okay. And, you know, in the opening, you see the girl with the cast in the car approaching the school, and then you have the narrator, or herself, she's the narrator. Um, you know, she just always is so good at just setting the scene. You see, and she does it so quickly. You know, the movie's what, or... 13 minutes and it's like in the first 30 seconds it's all set up for you right i mean the skill here is already there at Mm -hmm. first glance and what i really liked about it was that it had 
a differing point of view. You think you you know, you know where it's going uh, as far as the whole Mean Girls plot mm-hmm. and the cliques. But what it explored that a lot of uh, high school dramas don't really is how fluid that is, mm-hmm. is how an off remark here or, or a, a, a misstep here can take you from uh, being one of the, uh, the, the queens of the clique into mm-hmm. an outsider yourself. Mm-hmm. So I do have a question. I was thinking that this was a middle school. You're is right. It's, 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 you're, no, no, it's seventh grade. They mentioned... They mentioned it was yeah because grade. that yeah, okay. is more true to middle school. Mm-hmm. I feel like with okay. all the the gossiping and then the cutting out people out of the groups and you know the snubbing people. That's that's, I mean that's why middle school's hell for a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, high school's no slouch on that department either. <laughs> I know, I know, but middle school. I mean, I w- I was okay in middle school, but uh, <laughs> just because I I seem to be friends with everyone. But there was definitely the cliques like. The clicks were really clear. Um, is there anything that you saw in the movie that you go, oh, that gives you a hint as to the kind of style that she would show in her later mm-hmm, films? Mm-hmm. Um, the eyes. Chloe, mm-hmm. with her eyeliner, and it's so close up. And she just kind of like looks at all of her look, like the makeup and everything. I actually, it was funny. It reminded me of a 90s music video of, like, teens. Okay. Because, like, Chloe was kind of the epitome of the 90s. And in that, I mean, it was Oh, right. Yes, yes. She had a little bit of the Lydia Dietz's Beetlejuice kind of goth look was going on. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, so doing that. And also, it's interesting, the tub scene... It looked like there were ro- roses, but I don't know. Pre-American but... Beauty, maybe? Well, also pre-Virgin uh, yeah. Suicides, which, which yes. we'll talk about yeah. uh, next. But mm-hmm. but that tub scene is almost like a little uh, hint yes. at, at what's to come. And the journal writing, you mm-hmm. know, in the end where she's writing the journal. And I forget that last quote, but it's pretty pretty good. You know, that's what the movie goes out on. Um, but you know, you see her journal with all the little drawings and then the writings and you see that a lot in Virgin Suicides as well. And unlike, uh, most, uh, first, uh, short films, this one got to boast a, uh, cameo by, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's so funny. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, no, he does good. He does good. (laughs) But, um, it just occurs to me that uh, if he if he was alive, could Peter Bogdanovich like hook his buddy Orson Welles up with a job playing like a, a superintendent or something? <laughs> <laughs> One other weird connection I saw from it was the use of the cast. I think it's a really interesting choice to have the main character slash narrator have a cast that is kind of getting her like one step behind from the group she yeah. wants to be a yeah. part of. And uh, and the cast makes a prominent appearance in a later uh, Sofia Coppola movie. So yes. so this is a so in a way this could be a case where like the casting director might have two different <laughs> <laughs> kinds of roles in when it comes to Sofia Coppola production. Right, right. And the final one is kind of one of my most laugh out loud moments of a Sofia Coppola film: the twist that causes the click to get upended mm-hmm. involves a girl learning about slavery. And oh making my God, an yeah. offhanded remark. Yeah. 
that gets misinterpreted. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and when I and I when I saw that, my I have to say my mind was blown <laughs> because that is an issue that shows up in a later movie of Sofia Coppola's, that specific uh-huh, issue. Uh-huh. And when you look at what happens to the girl who raises that issue in Lick the Star, yeah. that is a perfect explanation for why Sofia Coppola did not bring up the issue of slavery in a later movie. <laughs> Isn't that, that funny? Makes, well, that come makes full sense. circle. Well, yeah. right, how, how cosmic is that? To have a director who literally calls her own potential controversy from across like 20 years, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing to me. It's like as if like you had like an early Pacino 1970s movie where he says, yeah, the hell of awards. Awards are just given to people who yell a lot while playing a disability. Yes. This movie will also be of special interest to uh, fans of the book Flowers in the Attic. Yes. Where it is uh, prominently featured. Right. Mm-hmm. And are you, did you guys read that book, by the way? I have not. I think I did. When I was younger, because it, it sounds familiar, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So I know, I heard it was a quite a hugely popular in, in its time, uh, but I not had a chance to like read that my read that myself. But like, it's definitely over on the um, on the big time on the characters' minds. Mm-hmm. From there, she makes a full feature film debut mm-hmm. with the Virgin Suicides in 1999. Get my hand. This movie is about the boys of a suburban 1970s neighborhood who have a fascination with five sisters who are living a mysterious, secluded existence in their family house. The film looks at how they have these limited kind of interactions with the sisters and the different impressions that that they can or can't get from when they do when they do see them. Right, right. It provides a kind of a unique look at this family and the way we can know things about them or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So beyond everything else, I, I have to give this movie a lot of credit for level of difficulty. How so? And it's because not only is she dealing with a very touchy subject of suicide, of, of teen suicide, she also is approaching it from both the perspective of female coming of age and male coming mm-hmm. of age mm-hmm. and somehow manages to balance these two very different things in one movie all without uh, being able to rely on realism because this movie has such a dreamlike uh, quality and uh, everything in it is heightened so that we're put in the head of these differing adolescent points of view, which is you know right, right straight from the opening credits, written as if they were notes in a in a school notebook. Right, that you right, might write. yeah. yeah. Um, something I wanted to mention mm-hmm. is okay. So the book 
I read along with the movie. The book, in in terms of essence, it is the same as the movie. So the, the when you say coming of age with like the boys and the girls, the boys narrate it from when they were when they're older. Like like the movie, I think Giovanni Ribsi does it in the movie. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of um, they're commenting on on what's going on and their fascination with the girls and everything. And, you know, the girls, we see them through the eyes of the, the boys because they're kind of put on this pedestal. When they're looking back at them, they're almost like mythic characters, like in terms of, you know, they were all so beautiful. And then they came from these not beautiful people, and and, <laughs> yeah. and it's just that's like, an interesting point, right? And and they just fantasize of that that time, and they actually it's interesting because they relate. And I'm talking about the movie mainly right now. Um, they relate the the time with the virgin suicides as kind of the decline for the rest of Michigan, like in terms of um, the economy. The plants are dying out too, right? Yeah, so everything that just kind of mm-hmm. died along with the girls. So it's it's very interesting. Right, and, and beyond everything else, it's a period piece with yeah. great 70s uh, touches. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah, sometimes it's tough for me to say the word great 70s touches when it's really to visual things, Steve. Mm. <laughs> uh, the 70s may have had some really fine, high-quality aspects to it. The fashions are not among them, and the interior decor uh, is running a very close second. (laughs) All all of which are featured here, um, and you have uh, uh, a really good cast. You have, as the parents, uh, Kathleen Turner and James Woods, Mm -hmm. both playing very against-type from their uh, 80s heydays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Lux, who is... uh, the first of many collaborations Sophia Coppola will have with uh, Kirsten Dunst. Yes, yes. Kirsten Dunst, I think, was in a pretty interesting career period over here during her, like, teen years. Mm -hmm. Um, And here she continues to be quite fascinating, like, in the girl who the boys get the most familiar about what she wants and how she feels. Right, and it's all around Trip Fontaine, you know? Like, he played by Josh Hartnett. Oh, my God, I just love it when he's just walking through the high school. He's, like, the badass dude where all the girls do shit for him. And, you know, he goes to the attendance office and he, like, takes the girl's hair and puts his hand by yeah. it and then there's like all this killer music whatever he walks because he's just like just this cool dude um which you find out he ends up being an alcoholic and you know in a rehab but yeah yeah so i think him and lux their relationship is kind of pivotal to everybody around them. I, so. I really hope the author of the book had a had himself a nice glass of wine after he came up with the name Trip Fontaine <laughs> because that name really does more to sum up the character uh, yeah. than, than anything. And of course, he he's a victim of one of uh, the '70s hairstyle things. Yes, uh, it's, to me, it's an unfortunate <laughs> similarity to um, Ashton Kutcher's Kelso from that '70s show. <laughs> So, and which I'm sure it's deliberate to make like the presentation of him like 
gliding down the hall in slow motion yeah. with, I think, Hearts of Magic Man playing on the background, right. like, is countered with the fact he's just got these just sideburns that are just asking for a lawnmower I mean, to attack what, them. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting to me about the use uh, of that character is it doesn't go the obvious route to make our narrators the romantic interest or even characters who will really get to know the <laughs> sisters. So you have this outsider who, from the narrator's point mm-hmm. of view, also has a degree of strangeness, just as they view the sisters in, in that degree. So it, it, it allows for kind of a unique... Um, a unique point of view situation where we can continue with the, the, the four boys who are, well, one of them's narrating, but they may as well be a group narrator. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and continue the sense of mystery throughout. Yes, if Terrence Malick made an 80s sex or 70s sex mm-hmm. comedy, that, like, <laughs> this would be the, the global Malick voice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it just hit me that, like, usually in a conventional romantic comedy, you have the romantic male lead and the romantic female lead and they would both have a bunch of friends mm-hmm. whose main purpose is to just be enjoying over uh enjoying over the their own failed romantic interests to make the main character look good but here they are like the main character and like it's cute how you were saying brad how like yeah the narrators they're kind of their own global voice they're certainly they they have no personality themselves apart from their longing to understand what the uh lisbon sisters are all about uh i wonder if the book has this same note of something the movie tries to do which is take like a dark subject but also have these like comedic moments of absurdity right exactly and i actually want to talk about one scene that kind of epitomizes the whole film is when they have the party it's for um cecilia cecilia so you know they're all just kind of chill and then there's that italian kid who's trying to flirt with kathleen turner Turner, and (laughs) it's like i like punch you know and and then but this is kind of inappropriate when the the kid that's um special yes. he he comes you know and they kind of just make fun of him and that's and that's maybe what switched cecilia off now that i've seen the movie a couple times i just always cringe when she leaves because i know that she's jumping like a right. minute later just to like hear her go through the fence um and then just it's grotesque for sure and yeah. and mm-hmm. but i'm just saying like the sadness and the hor- horrificness, along with the humor and the characters, is kind of all in that yeah. scene. It makes me wonder if the book was doing it in an interesting way about, like, yeah, how it combines this level of nostalgic reminiscence with this absurd deadpan type comedy, like you had said, Rebecca, <laughs> mm-hmm. when when Celia or Cecilia makes her suicide after, like, this uncomfortably, awkwardly, yet weirdly funny situation, yeah. you hear her impalement on the fence. It's pretty and awful. It's a, yeah, it's awful, but to me, I find it was just, it was a little extra squishy, and you're like, oh, gee. You're, and for me, I was left wondering, just what the heck happened? I mean, yeah, finally... and then when they pull the fence later, and That's that, right. it, the funny thing is, like, all the neighbors are, like, yes. just gossiping about it. Like, it's like, they don't... 
talk about it like it's a serious issue. That's they right. just kind of like joke about it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, they had to move the fence. And there was that one woman who's like, you know, it's probably their decorating scheme that makes all the girls depressed. Like, they just <laughs> need to get out of that house. Right. Which yeah. I'm like, yeah. that's... It, it's it, a weird way about hey bring up right how they bring up like the environment they contrast that Be, like that way that the fence is pulled is is shown in a kind of awkward way because they're struggling at it it also like covers only half the house and then when they they finally get a truck to uh, tie yeah. to one end of it and then you still hear it dragging as various neighbors kind of look and follow and they're their heads turn to follow. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it ties every character into this sense of mystery because mm-hmm. the adolescent characters are dealing with the mysteries of coming of age, while at the same time, everyone else is dealing with the mystery of this young girl's suicide. Mm-hmm. And what what's really cool is that the film doesn't give you easy answers to any of this. The movie does not provide pat answers, and I really respected it for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I have a fun theory I want to run by you guys. Oh, no. Okay. Or a theory I think is fun. <laughs> the virgin suicide is a misnomer, since at least one of the girls has had sex before she kills herself. Oh, yeah. To which, then she why She has call- a lot of sex. Yeah. 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 Details. So yeah. <laughs> why is it called the virgin suicides? Maybe virgin isn't talking about sex. Virgin is talking about killing. That's something that one of the boys mentions. They, they explicitly say in the narration and early in the movie... We always felt that when it was a suicide of these Lisbon girls that caused, the, that was the start that's true. of the decline. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Right. Mm-hmm. And the concept of, of virginity can certainly, you know, usually we talk about in terms of sex, but we could also just look at it in terms of innocence itself. See, that's so the way I was seeing That's the, the way even, I was going. Even though Lux mm-hmm. is far from a virgin by the end, she is still an innocent, uh, unaware of, you know, kind of what life truly has to offer. The tragedy of it is in their ages. The the, the first girl says to uh, the psychologist, well, I guess you don't understand because you've never been a 13-year-old girl. And, you right. Know, that, that, that's, that's a valid point. Yes, I think that's kind of key and that Sophia included that particular yeah, moment. Yeah, no, I mean, Sophia's really great at capturing teen angst. When you're a teenager, everything is huge. You know, you yeah. break up with your first boyfriend, your life's over. You, your friends cut you out of the group, your life's over. Yeah. And I think in terms of um, when you're a teenager and you're by yourself too much, especially if you're a girl, your mind begins to spin, you know? You think about all the things you can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about the things you're missing out on. You are starving for something out there. Sophia does a great job of capturing teen girls' angst when, you know, isolation okay, happens. Huh. And, you know, that's maybe something that I, I like about Sophia Coppola. She speaks to um, the female, I, I feel, in that sense. 
um, even though the the book was by a male. But I, 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 I mean, she the way she visually showed it was great. Like um, one of my favorite shots in the film is actually there's two shots. One when um, Cecilia is writing in her journal and they're in the like cornfield area i don't know yes whatever that is and the it's the boys imagining them Mm -hmm. um and while they're reading cecilia's journal and that kind of unlocks the angst part um the other scene is after lux and trip have you know done stuff on the football field yeah she's just laying there and it's morning and you see her just laying on the ground and waking up and it's beautiful yeah yeah but then also just so i mean i found just so painful because she's a discarded yes that is trophy awful awful just like what uh yeah because she met the wrong bad trip you know yeah and it's sad that when they after they have sex He's not interested. See, he right? just leaves. That is, see, that is kind of the mm. he conquered, the, and now he's moving try, on. They even tried yeah. to give the adult trip kind of a chance to explain himself, and he right. can't really because no. you know there is there is there is no yeah you know simple explanation mm-hmm. for something like that either. But it, but you're right; it does make she for wasn't a, a mystery anymore. Scene. That's right. For him, yes. right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, in fact, mm-hmm. I, I beg to differ with you, Brad, a little bit in that, no, I, I kind of think it is kind of simple. It's it's what Rebecca just mentioned. It's kind of a very sad aspect of people mm-hmm. that the thing that compels people to wonder and dream is the fact that they don't know and can't have <laughs> the most the biggest dreams the mo- biggest visual representations of these dreams and images and and thoughts of what these girls might be doing all come from the boys perspective right and the girls are never given a voice to themselves except from how the boys experience it and trips complete abandonment of lux is like the per- the, ep- the perfect example He's the one who gets what he wants, get, and and I don't even necessarily mean in a sexual way, but he gets as close to this girl as he feels he can, mm-hmm. and then he has, doesn't even have any interest in ever talking to her again. But but Sophia Coppola doesn't just leave it there, and I, I, I certainly don't think we're meant to sympathize with Tripp's actions, because we're not, mm-hmm. but we do see adult Tripp basically saying, like, well, she's the one that got away. If I wasn't such an idiot in high school, right. maybe my life would have been better. Also, it goes back to what I like about the structure here, is that by separating the narrators from Trip, you don't have Trip being your point of view, she's so good. that when he leaves the picture, we still get these amazingly sweet scenes uh-huh. uh, for a movie that takes such dark turns of um, the boys' fantasies. And and their fantasy, in this case, is to travel the world with the girls. Mm -hmm. They have this wonderful, again, the innocence. And so you see these, uh, what looks like, you know, home movie clips Mm -hmm. of of the boys and the girls uh, at all these sites just having a a, a great old time. But you understand that, you know, none of this is, is real. And, and there are these moments of sweetness. The other one that I really enjoy 
is when uh, they try to make, after the girls are under uh, curfew, they try to make contact by playing uh, records to each other. There's a lot of wonderful music uh, in this film, and so their conversation becomes through through records on the telephone. That's a fun part where they narrate, we wanted to see how we could communicate with these girls in their secluded environment. Eventually, it took us a week to find out the answer. We would call them on the phone. <laughs> and they w- and it's really a very cool detail to me that they don't communicate with them through actually talking. They communicate through them through music. What did you think on then on like Sophia's kind of choice to like not really give the girls an inner life and make them kind of like these... You know, in effect, maybe fantasy figures for the I boys think to wonder about. She was honoring the literature. Mm. Um, she didn't, and which I think was a good call, because I I think they wouldn't have seen seemed so. We wouldn't be in, as drawn to them if we really knew them. We get to know the boys through narration, mm-hmm. through plot. But I think we also get to know the girls yeah. through nonverbal cues. That's uh, you true. Know, we talked about the scene where Lux is left uh, in the football field, and that is an amazingly uh, empathetic scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of uh, scenes where we kind of just see them, you know, in their everyday behavior you know, hugging each other and just being sisters. Yeah. And so I, I think. Again, we, we, we do get to know them, just not in as overt a way as the story gets us into uh, the guy's headspace. Yeah. I didn't really, I didn't feel that way. Like, I, I kind of felt the non-Lux girls were pretty undifferentiated to me. Like, I couldn't tell you the first thing about how any one of them would behave aside from uh, killing themselves. And I wouldn't know, I, and I really agree with you in the beginning, what we said in the beginning of this conversation about how all the four boys were not trip or like uh, pretty undifferentiated too. I couldn't tell you one thing that any one of them would do that the other person wouldn't. I was just going to mention the, what I think is the positive for the film, which is its dreamlike quality mm-hmm. and something mm-hmm. Coppola will carry on through her other films. And that makes individualizing the characters less important. What she's going for is this feeling uh, that is not going to happen through plot, it's not going to happen through story, but it's going to happen through uh, filmmaking. And I think Mm -hmm. her balancing all the different emotions, all the different feelings, all the different moods in this film uh, makes it a remarkable debut. For, yeah, for me, this is like a very much an exploration of like Sophia explore using her visual sense to try to go and express like a dream world, uh, kind of a world of longing for a world of longing for something unknown and maybe unknowable. That aspect of longing, especially expressed visually mm-hmm. and being put into a strange place is brought about, I think, magnificently and much more effectively in her next film, Lost in Translation in 2003. Yeah. 
But the film is about Charlotte, whose husband, John, is a celebrity photographer off on a job in Tokyo. Uh, Charlotte is left by herself at, a to- at the Tokyo Hotel, where she strikes up a friendship with Bob, who's a movie star in Tokyo, set to film an ad for some whiskey. Uh, they find themselves becoming close as they enjoy the unique experiences out of the city together. Mm-hmm. Boy, talk about like being able to put yourself in a whole new world. Yeah. Uh, uh, using this, using the city and the sights and the sensations of it to go be a environment that, yeah. unlike the suburban environment of Virgin Suicides, is actually fertile for connection and oh, communication sure. and communication and further intimacy, I really love how it brings that out. Yeah. Well, that's truly the heart of it. I mean, Sophia had two things in mind when she made this film. One, Bill Murray. (laughs) She had him in mind when she wrote the script. Two, unlikely connection that is only in a time, instead of time. And like, Ah. for this this film, I mean, yeah, you see those romance movies where those unexpected meetings and, you know, whatever. But this one is is really original in the sense it's all about the soul connection. It's all about, um, you know, when you just find someone who totally gets you and you get them, even if, like, for instance, Bob and Charlotte are at very two different points in their life. But she brings something to the table for him, and he brings something to the table for her. And it, you know, it, it, it could have got sexual and weird. I'm glad it didn't. Um, hmm. I think the most intimate scene, you know, um, is when they're on the, the bed together. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that scene was really hard to shoot because they had to be really vulnerable and i know scarlet had a hard time <laughs> she was really young she was like 19 mm-hmm. in yeah. that film so she you have to like dive in and be really um vulnerable yeah and this is yeah. uh, scarlet johansson is not an actress who was known for doing vulnerability she's always had a kind of like a remove to her uh, like ironically she has more of a sense of mystery to herself that like the that the girls from the virgin suicides kind of had you know and and you're not really expecting a john a cassavetes movie level of expression from her so yeah she went to some really um deep places with her performance in this one yeah for sure um this is a movie that explores everything and it, it explores you know, loneliness a bit, you know, um, that go that trek we have where we are constantly searching for who we are. And we see that more in Charlotte than Bob. Yeah. Bob's come to the place where he's like, okay, I'm hit a point in my life that I'm just kind of like stuck, like, yeah. you know, midlife crisis. He's literally stuck in the, tr- in the right, uh, electrical scene. Right, right. Oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so he just... You know, this whiskey thing he hates. Yeah. He hates it. But those scenes are so funny. Yeah. When, like, the Japanese are trying to explain, and he, then the interpreter, like, says two words, and he's like, is that it? Is right, that well, that, it? That's yeah. where this brilliant casting comes in yeah. of, of Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he had been making efforts to be a dramatic actor for some time, 
uh, in his career, but but it here it clicked uh, better than ever For because sure. he didn't completely let go of who he is, which is a legitimately funny guy. Uh-huh. And so Bob is funny. His character is funny. But you also see uh, the loss in his life, the emptiness uh-huh. of uh, when he's dealing with his wife over the phone, and there's not the connection there that that he has with Charlotte. Right. And and what a great performance! He's able to convey both sides of it, and he's and again there there's uh, it's also a balancing act because you do have something potentially creepy going on here, mm-hmm. which is the relationship between girl in her early 20s and and a man in his mid 50s mm-hmm. and the the film just handles it it wonderfully because you you are rooting for them and you might not be with different actors hmm i was maybe i'm inured by seeing uh one or two woody allen movies too many but i did not I have to just admit, I did not have that kind of feeling of creepy dread when I first saw the movie, because I was so taken by the particular connection that mm-hmm. they had, mm-hmm. that if that had moved into a sexual connection, I would have, maybe, I would have, uh, uh, like, mentally acknowledged the huge age discrepancy, uh-huh. but I would have been like, Hey, these two people really have this connection that they have that they are finding so lacking in the other people in their lives. Go ahead. If you had gone there, you wouldn't have had the beauty of this of the scene that you were referring to earlier with them in bed, where they he just touches her foot, mm-hmm. and it's it's an intimacy that is so much more romantic than you know 95 percent of the sex scenes out there right yeah i'm right i mean that's one i think the real values of the film is that it like shows you what a very truthful statement upon intimacy does not have to be explicitly related and i pun not intended upon just sex Mm -hmm. right like you can have moments of amazing intimacy And that does not have to be related, but at the same time, the characters, it's also fair to the movie, in the movie, that the characters are exploring that. I mean, there's a moment where um, Murray has, invites the jazz singer over to the hotel room Mm -hmm. and Scarlett is angry. I don't know if he invited her. I think she kind of imposed herself. herself. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. And he had definitely been drinking a lot that night. Yeah, so when he woke up in the morning, he's like, oh, fuck. You know? Yes, that's right. That's right. But never, never, nevertheless on that, like, despite the fact that Charlotte might not necessarily have thought or mm-hmm. had sexual intentions towards Murray's Bob character. She's still angry. And yeah. why is she angry? She's angry because there is some sort of intimacy to be gained that she thinks that like that she thinks Bob is moving putting that in a different direction. It's not a matter that there's these hard and fast rules, right? Mm-hmm. For how people feel others are honest or, or um, intimate with each other. It's just that we're sorting it out. Right. And I think the movie is fair in acknowledging this kind of complexity. You yeah. know? It's also very uh, adult and mature in the way it recognizes that marriage is a thing. 
both characters are married. married. Now, again, yeah. most movies don't care about such things, but in addition to age differences and the fact that they don't know whether they're going to ever see each other outside of Tokyo, you know, we're, we're dealing with, with two characters who, while, you know, not necessarily, you know, what one overtly breaks his marriage vows, but the fact that they're married is something that's taken seriously here. It doesn't seem that John necessarily takes it seriously, but he's just kind of like he's very different. He's kind of all over the place. But um, what's her what's her name? The one who plays the actress? Oh, Anna Ferris. Anna Ferris. Yeah. She's just like I think what happened here. And you're right, marriage is taken seriously. But Charlotte has come to the point where she's two years into the marriage, and she doesn't know who her husband is anymore right he's become some foreign creature which is funny because they're yeah they're in a foreign city yes and so same thing with with bob i i think he no i take that back 25 years he's been with his wife mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i feel like they are at the point where they're just kind of like oh we know each other there's no more surprises left so mm-hmm. that's the status of Bob's marriage versus um, Charlotte's marriage. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe she was upset because she hasn't really understood someone who's yeah. intimately connected with her for so long. And it, it did seem like a betrayal to her um, for him to sleep with this woman. Um, but yeah, I just. I don't know what it is, but their relationship makes me so happy. Like, so happy. Like, those scenes in the bar where they're just kind of, like, yeah. saying, like, let's join mm-hmm. a jazz band mm-hmm. and, like, all that thing. And yeah. um, I my favorite, my favorite scene, well, second favorite scene, is when they go out with her Japanese friends and they're like running around the city together. Mm-hmm. So much fun. Like you just want to hang out with them. Yeah. You know? Such a contrast yeah. to the hotel. Right. Where they feel stifled. Yes. Where they feel like the foreigners that they are. Mm-hmm. And, the, and and just the fact that there is kind of an Americanized uh, jazz club in the hotel yes. is, is something that you know, is there to make them feel more at home, but it makes them feel less at home. Yeah. Because it's this... Uh, false inauthentic thing so it's uh-huh. only when they leave the hotel and and go to the karaoke bars and the and the uh, and hit the streets and, and yeah. get this kind of uh, this kind of culture that they've only been able to see through windows uh-huh. in uh-huh. the hotel th- that helps their relationship blossom exactly. as well as opens themselves up yes. to the place they're at Right. I cannot uh, emphasize enough just how effective Sophia is here uh-huh. in showing that exact thing in visual terms, in cinema terms. So many times, like, Charlotte is looking outside her hotel window yeah. at the vast expanse below uh-huh. or looking as she's traveling through the streets in the car and the and the if reflections of the thousands of different colored lights are moving across the windshield and across her face as she's observing and this look through these windows and portals is done is just added in a nice gradual way so Uh that when they um 
bust out through the city. Mm -hmm. The activity becomes that much more energetic and fun and enthusiastic Uh as Uh a result. And that is contrasted so well with a depiction of the hotel so stultifying that the characters could go move into the Shining's Overlook Hotel to try to relax. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) That you're... And all combined with just an astounding use of music to just really put me anyways Mm -hmm. in this blissed out space you know this appreciation of the beauty and strangeness that the boys in the virgin suicides were pining for and i just fell from a distance but i dove right in right this one and and that that strangeness that kind of dreamlike quality in virgin suicides is transferred here into this idea of Tokyo because we're seeing it very subjectively. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing Tokyo presented as it is, but as it's viewed by foreigners, right. by people who are not part of the culture, who don't understand it. So we see, especially being so many scenes of kind of this uh, bizarre, what looks to us like bizarre behavior, mm-hmm. these cultural um, strangeness that Murray gets to use his comedic skills yes, to yes. Uh, to yeah. comment upon, but it really makes Tokyo kind of the third character yeah, for in sure. this movie. For sure. I actually want to point out um, a scene when they go to the hospital. It's definitely like a foreign whatever. Everybody's speaking a different language, so is the doctor and everything. But I don't know if you guys noticed this, but so... Bill Murray is waiting for Charlotte um, to come out. She's getting her foot looked at. And she's he's talking to that guy who's got the little stuffed, I think that was an owl or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then, you know, they're doing that circle thing. So I still don't understand why they did this, but I'm glad they left this in. The two women right behind them are crying with laughter mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. crying with laughter and i'm like that is so perfect because you know that wouldn't necessarily be the case if it wasn't like uh, bill murray there in a in a movie but they left it in and i just i love that scene i love that scene um and then the fact that scarlet and Bill are there together sharing that moment is just kind of another notch of their, you know, enriched experience. I mm-hmm. think one of the reasons we accept Murray so readily in the unconventional romantic situation the movie presents is because he is not just uh, affectionate towards uh, Scarlet, but once he's out of his work shell where he's a little caustic, once he's with real people he's affectionate towards everyone he wants to kind of bridge Mm -hmm. this uh this divide of language and and culture and 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 it it, and and we know now that it kind of fits in with his own persona oh yeah we know that in real life he like shows up at people's weddings and shows up at bars and be and just decides to be a bartender for no reason yeah and it's just like kind of the wonderfulness that is bill murray for sure is is showcased here more so than in just what I think he's done since then. It's a very difficult balancing act he has to do because the early Bill Murray is known for having this snarky, above-it-all attitude for what he was uh, having to deal with in his Saturday Night Live sketches and his um, uh, 
and his what about Bob and Groundhog Day? Well, on Groundhog Day is another. Well, was a great case where he's snarky in the beginning, and it really does a gives him a big payback on that later. So it's actively commenting on that. Mm -hmm. But here, I think it's super cool because. I think he has to put it to 5% of his usual level. Because you do feel that in the sense that, like, hey, he's not taking everything just... He's not fully embracing mm-hmm. this Tokyo world. He's kind. There's a level where he feels and is aware and he makes us aware. Boy, this is strange. Boy, I'm in a weird situation, aren't I? But he's not doing it in Austin Powers way where he's winking to the audience like, hey, can you believe this shit? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a... It's a very subtle level of appreciation of the weirdness of the different places he finds himself in. Yeah, because yeah. at the beginning when he's lonely, it comes out a little more aggressively. Like when he's doing his uh, commercial shoots, his uh, comedy is a little bit uh, more, uh, you know, he's, he's making fun of the people a little bit more. But then yeah. as he falls in love, as he makes this connection, he opens himself up to uh, the rest of the people around him as well. Yeah. So, um, you think he fell in love? Well, I think the film explores the se- uh, a sense of what love could be. True. At least in an, I mean, or what intimacy could be. I mean. True. You can assign, use that word to assign, um, assign different, uh, different things. It, may, it does make me wonder if this is just like Murray's like appreciation of a moment. Or if this is, or if this is some sort of true feeling, right? And well, that- and I think like it ties into one of another remarkable film, the wonderful Before Sunrise. At the end of Before Sunrise, you know, are the, do the characters love each other, or do they love the time they have together? And how much of a difference is there? Yeah. And so I, here's the know. thing. Um, so. Bob and Charlotte, at the end, recognize that this is just the moment we're in. Right. There's going to be no reunion. There's going to be, like, this is this is it. And I think they there are different, like, Greek words for love. And I could be getting this wrong. Oh, interesting. Maybe <laughs> agape is is the one that's appropriate for them. I could be getting this wrong. I might, I might have just said the wrong one. But the one that's friendship... Because mm-hmm. I see what they have, not necessarily like a romantic love, but I see it more as a deep connection with friendship. Because I have friends, like guy friends, that I'm deeply connected with, but I, I don't want to love them romantically, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and then sometimes you do meet someone where it just clicks for a bit and you just want to enjoy each other as like friendship, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, yes, they get very vulnerable and intimate, but I think that's friendship. Well, this all leads to the the final mystery of the movie, which is kind of its uh, moment of genius beyond all the rest of what we've been given by this film is when uh, they're about to separate and he whispers uh, uh, something to her uh, that we do not get to hear. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we don't get to know what that is, I I think is a beautiful thing. Because it, it turns this discussion about love and what it is 
friendship, everything, Rebecca, that you've been saying, into a discussion that can keep going forever. We don't know if they're in love. We don't know if they'll ever see each other again. And the fact that we never get to know that makes the the film so much more resonant. Um, apparently, uh, out there, there are some recordings of audio enhancements. Don't of tell you, me. La, la, no, no, la, la. Oh, no, no. I'm not going to say it because I think the film... <laughs> no, I know what you're talking it, I think, about. I think the like... film is so much stronger for, the, for, for us not knowing. Right. And even if originally at some point something was said and maybe at some point it was in the script... I'm glad it's out. We For don't know. Sure. We shouldn't know. Clearly, he's telling her what's in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. He did oh, that. That's a golden glow. Yeah, and clearly, yeah. Mary was telling her all about it. So. I completely agree with you, Brad. It's a great, great move to not just have it be whispered, but then also to just see the expression on uh, Scarlett Johansson's face mm-hmm. as. She has an understanding of what Bill Murray's saying, and it's clearly affecting her, you know? She's taking that message, whatever he has to say to her, she's finding it, you know, some sort of, like, inspiring, mm-hmm. maybe enli- maybe enlightening, but just a real heartwarming and affirming yeah, message. Yeah, for sure. A I- message that she want- would like to hear, and maybe she even felt she needed to hear at that moment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I was going to say uh, Charlotte is kind of on a different path than Bob in terms of she's very in tune to like philosophy and or she tries to be and she's trying to feel something. And that is why she takes those day trips where she, you know, goes to see the monks and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also sees like the wedding that's going yeah. on and she just stares at it in terms of like what does that mean? Where? Why am I not feeling a certain way with this? And so she's all in the, I just want to figure out what's going on with me. And then there's that great quote where um, Bill Murray says, the older you get, the more you stop worrying about what people think of you and why you don't feel a certain way. And that's that point when they're in the bed or whatever. So, like... He's just kind of a light to her because her husband is kind of, you know, he's in his own world. And, there seems to be no treat. Right, yeah. right. And she's not getting any sources of wisdom at all in her life. You know, she calls her friend to talk about why she wasn't feeling away. She's like, I gotta go. Um, so I yeah. think, like, that end scene is really about him kind of giving her one last inspiration, one last hope, one last, I mean, I don't want to say last, but the beginning of something. Yeah. So I, that, I mean, that's how I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It very, and it very well could be like a final message or what he thinks it'll be a final message. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that the film leaves that kind of a question yeah. uh-huh. up to the viewer and it takes the kind to me it takes the formula that the virgin suicides does and it inverts it and it may it not just it doesn't invert it but to me it it grounds it not in the sense of making it more real but but like in, a, in an electric almost electrical way like the grounding in electrical takes all the electricity mm-hmm. all the charge mm-hmm. and puts it in a point 
you right, know? Right. And this movie takes the longing and the feelings uh-huh, of dislocation uh-huh. and it gives it this such a satisfying resolution, right, you right. know? You're left wanting, perhaps, in the virgin suicides of this stuff that not only never happened, but never could happen, you know? But I'm left with the movie feeling just so great on that mm-hmm, note because mm-hmm. not only do I am not concerned with me absolutely knowing mm-hmm. what Bill Murray said, mm-hmm. I feel it's unfair for me to know, and the reason I feel unfa- it's unfair is because I feel so much for these two people, mm-hmm. and I'm so happy that they right. managed to have that moment. Right. That, that the fact that they had it is a great ending, and I don't need to know on it. Mm-hmm. it that, these guys are, that these guys have this moment of success and connection in this world, that then this travel that they had, is that's great enough for me, and it just can't help but have me feeling amazing every time I right. see this movie. Right. Uh, I actually want to bring it to the Oscars. This was a big deal for Sophia. The loss uh, in translation. Yeah. I didn't, I'm not, didn't even remember that. Like she loss was, in translation. Uh, screenplay, she was right? nominated for original screenplay, and she won. And I believe she might have been the first female. Oh, like, and I could be wrong in that, but I know she made history in some way that night. Um, and then also I want to talk about poor Bill Murray. So <laughs> two things. He was nominated and he thought he was going to win. He thought it was a sure thing. Mm. And when his name wasn't called, he was so pissed off. Yeah. He was very vocal mm. about this too. Yeah. So here's the other thing. Everybody brings us in. Oh, if he wasn't in Garfield that year, then he would have yeah. probably won. Blah, blah, blah. Well, one of my friends actually told me today, which I think this is an interesting story about Bill Murray. He doesn't have an agent. What he has is an answering machine where anybody can call with a suggestion for a movie or whatever. So I guess the director of Garfield's last name is Cohen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Bill Murray just listened to the message, and he was like, "Oh, Cohen Brothers, they want me for a movie." <laughs> so he agreed to it, and he just like was like, "Sign me up. I'll be there for Garfield by the Cohen Brothers." <laughs> so he put himself in that situation that he did not want to be in, and if he had an agent, it would have helped him a lot. Although unfortunately, wow. uh, that that doesn't help explain him being in Garfield too. <laughs> oh, he was. Yeah. Oh shoot. Well, maybe he was. I feel like when he does a movie with the director, he's very loyal. Maybe he so. thought Paul Thomas Anderson would be doing that one instead of Paul <laughs> W. S. Anderson. Or maybe free la- free free lasagna was part of the whole uh, Yeah, I don't know. I, I I I like that apocryphal story just because the concept of the Coen Brothers making a Garfield movie is pretty damned awesome. You know? Do you guys? remember who like murray lost out to sean penn uh in mystic river yep which uh, was an excellent performance but you know it was an excellent performance of which sean penn has many in 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 his career but i think rightly we remember what bill murray did more in, in this case and yeah, you know, the Oscars are you know kind of kind of silly, yeah. but it, it would have been nice to see uh, Murray get his due. I remember how Murray was angry yeah. at the Oscars, and 
I totally feel for him on that. And not just because the I find the Oscars this bullshit ceremony. Yeah. And people who have these total, clearly fake smiles. Yeah. When a award they've clearly been pining for, in the case of, like, in Leonardo DiCaprio's case for decades. Right, right. Eludes them. <laughs> but apart from that, you know, you really have to appreciate just how difficult the role was because he, it's not just that he had to go into these levels of intimacy with Scarlett Johansson uh-huh. and, and really open up his character and his feelings that way, but all, but unlike where unlike in Wes Anderson films where he's able to be completely dour and, yeah. and Anderson puts him in this world where the dourness works for the film, mm-hmm. here, like you were saying, Brad, he has these great comedic moments. But he cannot be too comedic. He can't be too snarky. He can't let that part of his comedic persona, because that would turn Tokyo into a caricature, you see. So he has to, again, has to do like 5%. I think if he felt he went 3% one direction or 3% the other, right. it would not work nearly as well. But it takes real effort to straddle that right. line, you know? And, and Murray had to grow into this because uh, he did this film in 1984 called The Razor's Edge, uh, right. And in fact, he agreed to be in Ghostbusters only on the condition that they'd let him do The Razor's Edge, which was a straight drama about uh, a, man, uh, a soldier, a World War One soldier trying to find himself in the meaning of yeah. life. And, and it, I don't think it works. I don't think it's very good. I don't think Bill Murray at that point in his career was ready yeah. for that kind of role. You could see him uh, attempting kind of the standard take on how an actor does drama but because he is he is the persona he is, you know, that was not his moment. His moment, as it turned out, was this, where he takes who he is as a comedic persona, doesn't lose that, but instead transforms it into something so much more resonant mm-hmm. and, 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 and heartbreaking. Yeah, and when I feel... When you put so much of yourself, so many parts of yourself into a role, and you get so close to having this Hollywood community like be able to recognize the work that you spent so much effort to do, then I feel it's perfectly fair to, for as much wailing, gnashing of teeth, and rending of garments as you <laughs> want... To express your frustration, you know, and I'm not just saying that because it'll make the Oscars a more interesting ceremony either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I feel Bill Murray's completely in his rights to put. Oh yeah, that one. for sure. I know a guy who's tough but sweet. He's so fine he can be beat. He's got everything that I desire. Sets the summer sun on fire. So Sophia takes this level of attention and recognition that she gets from, uh, like, the Oscars and the success of her movie Lost in Translation, and she gets pretty ambitious out in her next film, Marie Antoinette, in 2006. The film is a story of the very infamous cake enthusiast, and it's shown her making a big life change because she starts in the, out in the movie being a princess of Austria and she becomes the wife of the heir to the French throne. 
Now, this change leads to new responsibilities and new rituals she has to perform, new expectations, and this enormous amount of scrutiny for all of the above, like, which causes her to like revolt in a number of different ways before, um, spoiler alert, a more well-known revolt occurs in France. <laughs> the first time I saw this film, I wasn't too crazy about it. I think it was because this was the first period piece that I'd seen that wasn't like a period piece like it was more like a rock star film and for some reason i i loved the music but it didn't fit with the period piece for me when i first saw it so after going from lost in translation to marie antoinette i was a little disappointed um but i've returned to it a couple times since then and i think the more i watch it the more i appreciate it and i don't necessarily see it as a period film but i see it as like kind of like a rock star film uh, just cuz you know marie antoinette she's just having she's living a very decadent lifestyle but it's interesting where you see her transition from the beginning to the end and how she became in that decadent Life. Right. This film asks a lot of the audience, especially if you have any preconceived notions of who Marie Antoinette was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly I'm no expert on the French Revolution or, or her history, but I think like, like most people, you have this uh, vision of her as the decadent ar- aristocratic queen who said, uh, let them eat cake, who disdained the peasants. And Sofia Coppola is coming along and saying, wait, let's look at it another way. And she's uh, based the film on a biography um, by uh, Antonia Frazier that gives a, a far more sympathetic view uh, of Marie Antoinette. So, we, we, so I think for me, because I, like you were saying, Rebecca, the first viewing was a bit rough going because mm-hmm. I had those preconceived notions yep. but then when you see it again and you kind of realize that she's got an entire other agenda if you can get on her wavelength she ends up making a, a pretty cool film of the film she wanted to make she just I don't think she made the film most of us walked in there expecting to right. see yep. I like that Sophia is very she sticks to her guns mm-hmm. She's like, okay, I'm passionate about this this film project. I know what I have in mind. I mean, there's a quote from her um, where she says, I try to create what I, I see in my head. Like, she she visually creates, you know, she has, she has a goal in mind. This last time when I watched it, I noticed, um, well, first of all, Versailles is epic. And they filmed it actually at, Versailles. Yeah, wow. Which which is a big big deal. Um I think I really enjoy the part when she she gets involved with Rose Burns character and where life just becomes one big fun ride. I guess that's the part most people mm-hmm. enjoy. But yeah, in the beginning there's just that struggle because she wants to get pregnant and everybody and she keeps getting her mother just keeps laying all this shit on her that she's not pregnant. 
and you you do feel for her in those early scenes. Um, but of course, I like it when it all flips mm-hmm. to the party stuff. But that's the more rock star fun part. So. Right. But, but I think the story Sofia Coppola wants to tell here is that of a normal girl in extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Because as royalty in Austria uh, at the time apparently was nothing <laughs> compared to royalty yeah. in France. And so she's a, a, a young girl. She, I think she's supposed to be you know, 14 or so when mm-hmm. uh, she's married off to Louis XVI. Um, yeah. Not of her own choice. She, she, gets, she has no agency in any of this. She can't bring anything with her. They, they, they strip her uh, naked so that she can't have any of her old clothes. She only has to have her new clothes. They take her dog away, yeah. but she could have French dogs. So what? 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 We, so we have uh, a lot of sympathy for the way um, Kirsten Dunst uh, portrays the, this character as somebody who is in completely over her head and has to adjust into a situation that that you know, no one could, you know, imagine finding themselves in. And then when we get to the part where she gets to the the partying and the decadence and, and, and all the food and the and all that the hair. There's been a, the hair. There's yeah. been a lot of build to that. It do, that doesn't just happen. That's right. at the near the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Brad, I see what you mean about the idea of it's a look of like this very foreign environment, but what would it be like for a teenage girl to inhabit that environment? I got almost like the sensation that if uh, Lux had, instead of falling asleep on a football field, had fallen asleep in a library in the French history section, (laughs) this would kind of maybe be the dreams of what she kind of goes through, you know? I can kind of see how people would make an issue upon that. Having a modern girl's take on Marie Antoinette and Uh her historical uh story. My personal suggestion or offering would be that they should kind of get over it. Because from the opening credits, which have a punk song introduce it, Mm -hmm. the movie is kind of making it clear that this is not going to be a standard take on the story. Holding Sofia Coppola to excessive criticism for saying, hey, this isn't how things were really like, you know. Yeah, that criticism is a little too extreme for me. Uh-huh. I like how, in this movie, I like how it takes this attitude of the putting in the modern girl. And it gives this, to me, kind of a twist that pushes it in a kind of a, a Twilight Zone level. Marie Antoinette in the movie has a superpower or a kind of godly curse thing Mm -hmm. because she has this ability to hear and sense what everyone else in the environment is thinking about her and unlike the royalty i would expect at the time who would be very much aware of that like in this movie where we are made very aware of how this is such an oppressive experience for her like that her every action, her every gesture or look or the phrase she says or how she wakes up in bed has hundreds of people looking at her, judging her, plotting even maybe against her, and she is 
kept aware of this at all times. Mm -hmm. Which might be a connection to a a writer-director who also grew up in the public spotlight and who was that looked at awesome point, and, man, for awesome her point. entirety of her life. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I actually want to make two points. One, I kind of think of La Dolce Vita loosely uh, based with this movie in the sense, like, getting involved with, like, a party lifestyle, um, decadence and all that. Um, also, second point, the fashion. So, Sophia is great with fashion like i actually love her style i kind of want to copy it Mm. like when she's director or when she's directing she wears these like i don't know ralph lauren button-up shirts and then like these really nice navy pants and she's very more conservative she's got her director hat on but then when she goes out to these like formal things she's still pretty conservative with her dressing which i like um but she's you know she she's got the pulse for what is fashionable and i know maybe this isn't the cool part to you guys but marie antoinette i think out of all the films is fashion like and it did fashion. win an oscar for best costume right say. right i mean the hairstyles and the um the different clothing that they wear for like every scene like what i love my, one of my favorite scenes is when she has her own um like farm area and she goes natural yeah so she has like a white dress and her hair is all loose you know in the back so like you definitely can see the different points of her life and the different you know tones she's trying to set by what she's wearing um you know and there was that one time she had like her hair like four feet i don't know how many feet (laughs) that was but it was really high and i think that was during the time where she wasn't getting any you know, so she was making up for it in fashion and yeah. ca- candy and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, cake. Th- that hair so. made, like, Buster Poindexter and David Lynch seethe in jealousy. <laughs> How did you get that lift on it? Right. You know? It's amazing. Like, yeah. I think that's kind of what draws me in, like, the music and the the costumes. Everything else is okay. I I'm not, this isn't my favorite one. Um, but I, I think what I love most is the music and fashion. Yeah, mm. I, I don't think this reaches greatness like the first two films yeah. did. But at the same time, it's still a, a unique director statement. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like that about it. I like that it's passionate about what it is. And, you know, you know not every film has to be the you know, life-changing experience. Right, right. Very true. But so you so you did enjoy it. Yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, there, it was it was conceived, I think, in a very original way, and I, I think it ended up once you get past the historical anomaly, be, being a likable film. While I would have liked though to feel the way you guys do about like how it's effective at bringing this young woman's perspective into mm-hmm. this kind of incredibly oppressive environment. The movie also kind of goes through time, you know. Mm-hmm. It shows, like, progression of different events in her life, of the different political changes that happened uh-huh. in France at the time. And that's where I think the film falls short for me. It doesn't show her growing, really, as a character. She's, she's expressed in all herself or tried to in all these different decadent ways, 
but at the end, I kind of see her as like basically the same person that she was in the in the beginning. Well, this is a film about somebody having things done to them, uh, rather than somebody who causes change, who is their own agent. I mean, the very nature of her character is what happens to Marie Antoinette, not what does Marie Antoinette necessarily do. Well, that's true, but I contrast it with, like, even in a case where a person, like, has things happen upon her, there's ways where a person can even grow and change in that kind of restrictive environment, you know? And this is opposite of virgin suicides in the sense we're not looking at remove at her we're looking right through subjectively through her own eyes you know so i think at the end when she's riding away from versailles her expression is wistful in an environment where which does not belies the fact that she's going to a prison awaiting her head getting cut off (laughs) so i think it's i think the movie falls short in in not expressing that level of change you see what i'm saying Mm mm-hmm do you guys remember, by the way, what was like the... I think the reception for Antoinette was quite bad. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. And it came after Lost in Translation. so Not was, the movie anyone thought would follow that. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Was this right around the time Moulin Rouge was... Uh, no, this uh, was a bit later. Moulin Rouge was 2001. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so people are already kind of burned by that whole idea, especially with the hyperactive way that (laughs) that film had shown it. Uh You know, here I think it actually worked much better. It really brought about that, like, that level of just having fun and just living in the moment there. Uh, That felt, ironically, the most real in this very, very ostentious and strange, you know, environment that Marie finds herself in. Mm Mm-hmm. She moves from there into a more well-known environment using a change in her technique, I think, to make it feel strange in her movie Somewhere in 2010. There is a time when we all fail Some people take it pretty well Some take it all out on themselves Some they just take it out on friends Oh, everybody plays the game And if you don't, you're called insane The film's about, like, a famous actor who's hanging around at a famous Hollywood celebrity retreat having a glitzy but vacant existence there. But that changes when his 11-year-old daughter pays a visit and he needs to take care of her for a few days before she heads to camp. And mm-hmm. so what can she do to what can he do to have this t- share this time with her when he has a trip to Milan to promote his new movie? Right. Um, so the hotel is actually pretty famous, and I, I'm really kicking myself now for not remembering it. The Chateau Yes, Marmont. yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I would love to, well, there's a lot of wild stuff that goes on and has been going on at that hotel. It, it's the hotel that the song Hotel California was based on. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. I thought that was based on the Hotel California. um i okay so i actually really like this movie um first of all i love how it opens she's so strong with her openings at least i think um and this one 
it's, it's a, you know, metaphor for the whole movie in terms like he just keeps circling round and round. He doesn't know where he's going, you yeah. know, and then when he gets out, it's just like that music that starts it up. I don't know the song. I think it's just like um, a score or something, but it's it, it just kind of gets you excited about the movie. You're like, where is this going to take us? I think Brad thought different. Well, yeah, I think um, this is the first Sofia Coppola film that that I describe as derivative. I think it's using a lot of recycled ideas and stating its themes a little too obviously. I, I did not like that opening scene because it felt to me a little bit like uh, like it was just hitting me on the head with a hammer with its theme right off the bat here he is driving in in circles uh and and, and it's longer than most scenes like that would take place so we're really hitting home that this guy's mm-hmm. going in circles mm-hmm. and then spoiler alert uh for the ending it, it, the ending is him driving his car along a straight road going somewhere getting out of his car and walking further fade to the credits and same song right what's that it's the same song at the end right right so the the, so there's this matching but but i just felt like it was too literal so we're dealing with some with a theme that has touched a lot of other um sophia coppola films which is ennui this kind of idea that uh Perhaps a very privileged, wealthy person might, you know, not understand their the their place on Earth or why they're here or what the the meaning of their life is supposed to be. A lot of European art house films of the '60s really hammered this home. So the films of uh, Antonioni. Uh, there are even some echoes of uh, of of Eight and a Half uh, from Fellini. I, I think in this film, and not only that, but Sofia Coppola herself, I think, dealt with this kind of a situation so much better in Lost in Translation because a lot of the struggles that Johnny Marco, uh, played by Stephen Dorff, is going through is kind of like uh, some similar issues that Bill Murray faced, except he doesn't have the humor and the personality of Bill Murray. So we're kind of repeating some things that, 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 that she's already covered, but for me in a less dynamic way here. So I feel like Sophia has a muse for every film, and she makes that muse different for the the story that she's going to tell. It's easy to compare Bill Murray to Steven Dorff's character because they're both like celebrities that are kind of lost in themselves. But I see it as a whole different other kind of movie. First of all, yeah, he's not like a funny ha-ha guy, but he's Mr. Cool Guy, you know? He's the guy that, you know, everybody loves and it's like what you said his name's johnny right yeah john it's like johnny like (laughs) and he also is a womanizer i would say like every Mm -hmm. woman he sees he bangs pretty much Mm -hmm. um so like i feel like that's a little different than bill murray's character um he also is just so involved in this um shallow like celebrity world 
So for me, it, it's pretty cool, the parts where he's, like, involved with all these, like, movie stuff. I think one of my favorite scenes is when he has the, the his face covered for, yep. like, the old man thing, yep. and he's just sitting there. And yeah. you can feel what he's feeling, the sadness, the loneliness, yeah. the depression, um, you know. And then when he sees himself as an old man, yeah, that's... So... It, what I like about this film is it takes filmmaking, the artistry of it, and it tells the story of a lonely man in a rut because he just drinks all the time. He bangs everything. He doesn't. He wants. And he calls those twins like every time he's just sitting by himself, and yeah. he's like, "What do I do with myself?" But then the transition obviously happens when Al Fanning comes into the picture, and I feel like she kind of awakens his sense of morality like this is what like these are the important things in my life like my daughter is important and I don't know why I haven't regarded her for so long which is really sad but I feel like she just kind of brings the light that he realizes missing Mm-hmm. And so when she leaves, that's you know. I'm sorry, I'm telling the whole movie right now, but I, I'm I'm trying to illustrate a point, yeah. you know, why his character is the way he is, and um, why I'm drawn to it. Yeah, I feel the same way. This is actually my favorite Sofia Coppola movie. Wow, that's great. And one of the reasons I I really really adore it is. It takes those feelings of connection that you get out of Lost in Translation and it shows them in a kind of different way. The composition is still there, but it's done in such a subtle, like low-key way that still has these details that cause... You, the feelings and the impressions you get out of the movie to kind of draw into the to draw into the environment. Right, it's it's uh, her first movie where I think she does play with realism mm-hmm. as a visual style. Yes, and it, it does. And, I, and, and by no means do I absolutely hate the film. I, I'm more okay. critical of it in comparison to uh, some of her other films. But th- there are a number of very charming touches. Uh, I like the scene where uh, where Johnny is doing a photo shoot with his uh, co-star. Who uh, we we're looking at them doing all these uh, poses, mm-hmm. and then uh, we realize at the end of it that he's been standing on a block of wood because he's shorter than she is. Yes, yes. And then you you mentioned the uh, the the stripper uh, pole dancers, yeah. which is just the scene is saved by the fact that the pole squeaks. <laughs> with every single movement they make on it, so right. so this what is just the, one of the most you know not at all erotic uh, pole dance sequence is, is is made funnier by this uh, little touch that uh, I love the twins. In. I love every appearance by the twins. I love the different themes that they think <laughs> up every time they pay him a visit, and most of all. I love the concept because is there anything better to point out the vacancy of this kind of sensation 
than twin strippers. What yeah. value do you have out of, can you, what value do you get out of two people dressed like sexy tennis players that you wouldn't get out of one sexy tennis player? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he falls asleep. The yeah. Fur, you know. So, yeah. you see kind of yeah. how seriously he's taking this. I yeah. mean, yeah. I was just going to say, like, he's very into live entertainment mm-hmm. in terms of, like, instead of just, like, turning porn on, he he has to go the full mile mm-hmm. and get the twin strippers. Right. Also, he he just, you know, he sits and listens to that guy, or somebody's playing a piano at one point, or with yes. a guitar. I, uh, there's I someone could... playing a guitar that serenades him and his daughter later in the Right, film. right. So... Um, I, I just think it's funny how he has to go the full mile in terms of, like, filling that emptiness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Including driving really, really fast. Yes. And he's always paranoid that some paparazzi's following him. Yeah. Which, you know, could be the case. It's possible. Um, but yeah, I'd like to talk about when Elle Fanning, her, Claire, when Claire comes into the picture... Because I feel like then there's like a different kind of film. Again, I think this is a case for me where that subtlety comes through. Uh-huh. Because what is it that like, you know, reignites Johnny the Johnny Marco character? It's these little things. Mm-hmm. Just how you can pick up or draw from... Like these just small moments, just how the way your daughter makes you breakfast. It's just done in such a very small scale way. And mm-hmm. yet yet when you see how it's put together, it can, you know, mean so much. And in just the way that you go shopping for equipment for the upcoming camping trip, you know. Mm-hmm. The way you lounge even lounge around together on a different sofa in the lobby of the hotel. And and you kind of wonder again, is autobiography uh taking place here because Sophia Coppola would have been in this exact situation as a young girl uh, going around uh, various uh, awards and festivals and traveling the world with her uh, famous director father mm-hmm. and and I think it, it's, it's telling that the father-daughter uh, scenes are uh, the sweetest and, and I think the most successful in the movie and that the, the two actors really do have a nice chemistry together. Yeah, and um, there's a scene when he goes to her figure skating practice mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it is kind of a long scene where you watch her do the whole song and everything yeah. but I think it's, it's very sweet and it, in the beginning he's on his phone like the whole time and then he stops and then he's like why haven't I just yeah. noticed my great daughter who's, who's right here? Yes. Well, you look at what you were describing on the ice skating scene, and that's kind of a case where I, where I really see what makes this movie special. As you described it, he's looking through these texts, and then he realizes that, hey, my daughter is make, doing these She's this really ice good. skating, and maybe I should go and start paying attention, and by the end he applauds, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find such value in the honesty of not just showing that kind of level of change of attention, but but also honoring the time it takes. You know, that the fact that it's kind of a gradual realization, the change that he makes 
it honors that moment of how long it would take to take mm -hmm. place. It's, it's a little away, you can almost say it's like a microcosm of his whole life, you know, how he's had her live till 11 and she barely knows anything about right. his own daughter, you uh -huh. know? Uh -huh. And, like, this, there's a great filmmaker, a Russian filmmaker called Andrei Tarkovsky, who he said his idea of, like, trying to make films was, I want to go and, like, be sculpting in time. And his idea uh -huh. was that, like, that time is just another tool that a film can use to express things, you know? Like, you don't, it doesn't have to just be, you know, light and sound, but also to get a moment, but also how you can hold an audience in that moment. Right. And I, at time and time and time again, I see him holding a moment, which, to be fair, for an audience, it requires a little more of an audience. Mm -hmm. an, an audience casually watching Lost in Translation, I feel they're going to get it. They're going to get these feelings and in her intent, you know? Someone watching somewhere might have to, like, just look at, like, how a scene is really long and, and go, well, what's happening? What's go And actively think of what's the character is going on in the character's head. But I find that when they do, or at least when I do it, like, it's really, really rewarding when you... That that scene where he gets the, the mask and he becomes yes. an old man, it's really cool to me how... It's not just done on that and then it done in jump cuts to just show when it gets removed he's an old man. But that it's this incredibly slow zoom as his head's sort of twitching, his head's moving at attention, and you're like, wait, is he, is he, what's he thinking? What's right. he, what's he, re what's he reacting to? What's it like to be in that kind of isolating situation? And, and to the way you think about these things, like, it gets you in, it draws you in, or draws me into what's going on in his own head, you know? And the movie's composition, in visual terms, really enhances this, too, because, because whereas, like, lots of translations, hallways are, you know, they're clearly oppressive, you know? The whole environment that Marie Antoinette is, is oppressive and decadent at the same yeah. time, mm -hmm. right? But it all comes at you, you know? These feelings all come at you, you know? But... That that curvy sh the the opening shot where the car is moving in circles, yeah. the message, the ostensive message of it is very obvious. Mm -hmm. Like you totally agree with you on that, but it's how it's shown I find just super cool. Where it's just like this one quarter of a circle, and you don't see the car for long stretches, and then suddenly you hear a roar a moment before it arrives, and it cuts through. It's just a section. Mm -hmm. His entire life is a section. Like you never, you so rarely in the movie like see him like a shot where you see his whole chair or his whole body or his whole chest. It's almost always askew, and there's parts that you know are that should be there, like from the stripper poles on to like the hallways. But there, the the framing is just claustrophobic enough that you not that you don't explicitly notice they're missing, but you feel it's missing. Mm -hmm. You feel a sense of ability of it's missing, but it's not as it's it's not as obvious, but if you make the as an audience member make the mental journey of it, it's kind of earned in a way that maybe a conventional movie do, would not would not do, you know? And in the same way their growing intimacy between the father and the daughter is it feels the same way. You just look at these like kind of smaller moments and by putting up your own effort to like wonder what those are about it kind of in a way i draws me closer to them right you know mm -hmm. right and and those those scenes like i said i think really do work the best and the there's an interesting connection 
with uh, the way she uses location uh, with Marie Antoinette because hmm. uh, Rebecca, as you were saying, they actually did shoot at the Palace of Versailles and that created a different kind of film. And here they're shooting at uh, Chateau Marmont, which has mm-hmm. this storied history of movie star parties and all kinds of craziness happening. And, uh, of course, this is the kind of place uh, Johnny would uh, would end up at. And the fact that he's at the real place, you know, gives the, gives the film, you know, uh, you know some, you know, legitimacy of location mm-hmm. that I think is especially... Uh, poignant uh when the uh uh staffer who uh just stops to sing sing them a little song yeah Yeah. it might be the actual guy yeah right right so so i i guess you know my 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 take is there there's various scenes that, that that i thought were were really good but i think the the deeper meaning of it i think was not presented in an original way or with an original twist so I found that uh, of less value than moment by moment. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just want to say something real quick. Um, so Benicio del Toro has a cameo. I don't know if you guys noticed yeah. that, mm-hmm. but he's like in the elevator with yeah. him. Yeah. And so it's a seedy place. There's a lot of shady shit that goes down mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And I think what I see in the film is that he's he's over the shady shit. I mean, yeah, he's like the epitome of the shady shit, but he's like, he's also realized that it does nothing for him anymore. And that scene where he's in the elevator with Benicio Del Toro, you could tell Benicio Del Toro is done with the seedy shit mm-hmm. and he's yeah. just worn out. You can see he's like, he's lost the life out of him. Yeah. And so it's kind of a reflection, like, am I going to turn out like Benicio? Yes. Like. So I I thought it was interesting the certain interactions he had. Yeah, um, it, it, that's a great point. I think Sofia Coppola really brought upon like this, like surface decadence, hiding a a lack of true feeling or true sense of purpose. You know, in this through an environment, I I think she's spectacularly effective on it. To me, somewhere is like the best Michelangelo Antonioni movie Antonioni has never made. But wow. I'm going to go further, and I'm going to say it's better, wow. b- better than Antonioni I've ever, That's I've great. ever seen. Well, we, we, we have a bias. He, he is a. We've talked about this before. He is a considered a a canon director. But I think you, neither you and I are very much fans. Well, I don't feel he should be shot out of a cannon. <laughs> but but he is he is great in a level that I kind of almost find pornographic. Pornographic in a sense that like he is all about this. He has a very particular sensation through that he's able to do through his films. This sense of ennui, Brad, that you described. Mm-hmm. He's really good at doing that. He has this intent is through like every frame of his movie. But to me, the film, at least from the films of his I've seen, he doesn't ever go further on going in a way that I find pompous or at very least unfulfilling upon like, oh, life, is that all there is? All my many yachts and the palaces I visit? And what does it all amount to? And if I were to disappear off the earth, will other rich people ever notice that I'm gone? Oh, woe is me. <laughs> it's... 
something I find really annoying more than anything else. But what Sofia Coppola does for in somewhere for me is a magic for the same reason and the same reason that I put Lost in Translation is more successful than Virgin's Suicides. Because once again I think she grounds it. Coppola grounds it, gives it a purpose, gives it a sense of meaning and people you would root for to transcend it by having this relationship between between this father and this daughter. By putting these people in this environment mm-hmm. and giving and putting you as an audience member in this environment, it gets you to feel and care and want for these characters to be successful in it in a way Antonioni not only does not do, but I feel does not even try to do. He He's given up. And Coppola honors that feeling, but sees a way out and sees a reason amongst it that makes it a greater artistic achievement than what I see in, in what Antonio does, however effective he does in his visual presentation. Now, after Somewhere, Sophia decides to keep it contemporary by looking at a very contemporary problem in her film The Bling Ring in 2013. Uh, it's about some teens in L.A. who get thrills out of breaking into celebrities' houses and making off of their favorite fashions from the places. Now, but what's going to be the result of their deeds? A hard time in jail or for them to end up as celebrities themselves? Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is about uh, the very modern Hollywood um, reality television tabloid culture, okay. uh, which is a culture that I absolutely hate and makes me resistance resistant to films about that culture. <laughs> okay. But that's not so much as a problem as I think that Sofia Coppola hates this culture as well. So what's missing from the bling ring that is present, I think, in every other Sofia Coppola film is empathy. Like, for Marie Antoinette, she had empathy for even unpleasant characters. But here, you have a little bit with the uh, the, the uh, gay man who is uh, kind of our audience surrogate, mm-hmm. who is joining this group. I mean, he's doing just as terrible things as anyone else, but he's not quite as obnoxious about it. So he's our surrogate. But as we're watching uh, Emma Emma Watson and this kind of group of Barbie dolls just act in the (laughs) worst Valley Girl stereotypical ways, it's just like, are we really going to uh, watch a whole movie movie of this with the MTV editing and everything? And again, I, I, I think Sofia Coppola is kind of just as disdainful, and that's problematic for the movie. Yeah, I was going to say, 
these people are for real, (laughs) which is so sad. Um, There was a time when I was in college, I was in Santa Barbara, and I spent a lot of time in L.A. on the weekends with my friends, and we would go to these exact same clubs that they went to in the movie, and we would get, like, the bottle service, and then we see the celebrities, I'm like, oh, that's Will Smith, that's Justin Timberlake. And it was like... It, it was horrible <laughs> in terms of like, yeah, this is awesome. I feel cool for a bit because I'm around all these celebrities. But really, I feel very shallow at the same time. And like the friends I was hanging out with at the time were obsessed with like, you know, the, the latest like uh, trash magazines. Um, so, yeah. So anyways, I was like, oh, I never want to like I avoid reality television. I never want to see that again. Although I did watch the show that um, Emma Watson's character was in it, um, just out of fascination, because mm-hmm. that was going on kind of at the time I was there. Did her character, um, was her character in a reality show before the bling ring incident? No, after. Oh, well, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and but the thing, what Sofia Coppola did, she took exact scenes from the reality show, where they, like, have their mornings, where they get up and they have their, like boards where they have like dedicated you know it's exact like it's shot by shot from the reality show which is really interesting even the homeschooling stuff yes yeah wow, because that's 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 where leslie mann plays uh yes. the mother yeah. and, and they homeschool wow. their their, and their so kids it is. and something called the secret which yeah, is an and Oprah so Winfrey it is. Thing. yeah that's really the whole thing so anyways first time i saw this movie i didn't like it that much even though i love sofia coppola but i was like oh god i just feel like i'm back there you know <laughs> like and i it's it's such a shallow scene and you know what what's paris doing and what's you know rachel bilson doing like that is how people talk anyways i rewatched it two times rewatched it two times second time i i saw the artsy side of it more like i saw what sophia was trying to do to tell this story and what i love she's really good at honoring the literature mm-hmm. like if she does an adaption so she literally took the exact stuff that was going on but filmed it in her fashion um which i admired uh so yeah that's on that i by the way i read that original article uh-huh. and to the extent i think the movie's lacking she actually does honor the material <laughs> because that right. article is not in my opinion, it's not the greatest written article because it kind of is a rote recitation of, well, they did this, and then they did this. And there's nothing in terms of, I don't want judgment out of it, but I would like at least a point of view or at, le- or at least some way of that one particular item that you're revealing can flow into a, another situation that you're also describing in this article and I didn't find that and I didn't find that in the movie right, <laughs> so I yeah it sounds like she was being pretty faithful in that way because you, you these uh, robberies so the these spoiled rich kids just decide to you know go into these celebrity homes and rob them but not to the point where they'd notice and it happens over and over and over again there is one nice shot where you see it from a long shot and it's an all glass house so that's kind of nice 
but other th- other than that, um, it, it was just how many times are you going to show us uh, the the way the way that these people ro- rob uh, <laughs> rob the house, and uh, and that leads to the the, the point in, in the conversation where I have to talk about uh, Paris Hilton. Which is hopefully about the only, time, Brad. Right, and hopefully this will be the only time in my actual life that I have to talk <laughs> about Paris Hilton. But but here it is because she's got a cameo in the movie. She uh, gave approval for uh, the crew to shoot in her actual house, which actually was robbed. And I really you, hope the film crew robbed her. Again. You know, but they, well, <laughs> well, but 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 again, and then you see that this house is just filled with nothing but pictures of her, hundreds of pictures of her, her face on the pillows, her face on this her face on that and she let people she wasn't embarrassed at all she let people go in and film that for the world to see oh my god dude you know it actually just hit me that like as you're dis- i did not realize that 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 was paris hilton's real house mm-hmm. i now you guys told me i was like oh that's interesting but now i'm remembering what you just described like yes so much of that house is just her pictures of herself mm-hmm. and and like and it's reflecting on herself over and over and over again and it's reflecting on her again when she literally lets permission oh yeah yeah sure this part where I'm show, I'm like the worst narcissist in history that's not president <sighs> like I'm perfectly fine with it. You know, please show me more. And I, you know, I don't even care what I'm showing. Maybe the fact she's... that there's a camera light pointed in my face and that my image is being broadcast to thousands more people, that's the only important thing that ever matters. Maybe she's got the John Malkovich thing going where she's always in her own head. <laughs> I, you know, you're right. Dude, you, you might not be that far. You might not be that far wrong about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> Paris, Paris, I... Paris, Paris. I think we should talk about uh, Rebecca Ahn, played by Katie Chang. Mm-hmm. I, I think I was drawn to her the most. Now, I know she was the most selfish, and she was the one who was stealing the most, but there were scenes with, with just her where you saw like her loneliness, which is a common theme for Sophia's films, and where she just wants to be somebody else. Like She wants to be Lindsay Lohan. She wants to be Paris Hilton. And there's one scene where she finally makes it to Lindsay Lohan's house, her her idol, and she gets her perfume and, like, sprays it in her face, and we're just looking at her for a while while she's, like, intoxicated with mm. Lindsay's smell. So there's, like, certain scenes that I noticed this time that I kind of was like, oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that she put that in because she didn't have to. Um, but it's Sophia, so she's great. Um, and then... There were certain scenes like uh, the car scenes, like um, that blonde girl, which I... I, I actually don't know yeah, the character Yeah, she was, so she yes. was the one who was driving, mm-hmm. and they were just, like, singing and uh, obviously coked up and drunk and all that. But it's just, like, how they're so unaware, you know? And that brings up back the teenager thing about how, you know, you're kind of in this bubble where you don't realize what's around you and you're just like intoxicated in that moment. Um, and then she gets the crash and something Sophia remarks on a lot is she, she's very fond of her times when she was a teenager. She remembers when she was, you know, driving in her car and going around in LA. And that was like, that's a really good memory for her. 
And I wonder, it's weird because she puts, she brings teens into films that have really struggles. So she probably sympathizes, but I think she also is very, um, she's very connected with that time in her life, um, which is why I feel like she keeps keeping that as a theme. Mm-hmm. So. Well, like as you're describing, like the club scenes, the dance sequences in those clubs, the driving scenes, like like you've seen those firsthand, those environments firsthand, and you're saying they're like dead on, and those those garish homeschools based on the secret are dead on. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. very much pointing uh, pointing out that these are like real things that are ha- real things that are happening. And it f- practically turns into a, a documentary by the end because the setup and, and the robberies are all filmed in this hyperkinetic MTV style. But once they're caught and, and we kind of see the case that's been built against them, uh, we see a lot of it through the coverage of reporters and the media. And it's almost like we've left the movie itself. And now the style of the movie is basically a documentary about the movie we just saw. And what, mm, and, and what that's ended interesting. up happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder why Emma Watson was. I mean, she was really good. I she it, to it, me, she gives the best performance it of the movie. Frustrate me though, because I know she's so smart and she's like such a grounded person. So see her play an airhead. I'm like no. acting. She, yeah. But she's really it's it can be hard, it can be harder to play a fundamentally different person than you are for sure. Like and like she, Kevin Spacey can Kevin Spacey couldn't play a, um um. Emma Emma Watson is brilliantly effective at doing playing a vacant idiot, oh, and sure. I said brilliant, you know, because mm-hmm. Kevin Spacey couldn't do it. For sure, I mean, she's successful at that. The only you know question is is the, the you know yes, she can play the character. Does she make the character interesting? For me, the answer is no, because from what the film presents, there's just nothing there, and that's not an not an interesting thing. Yeah. I'm like Rebecca. On your point about the uh, Rebecca on character is, I mean, I wish I'd felt like for her more in the way you did, but I I did not. I mean, I found her like a a sociopathic cipher. That's why she was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, yes, that moment where she's spraying herself. That is notable to me, but it's notable kind of just in the way a lizard would flick out its tongue to just try and sense the atmosphere. Okay. Or she's just, like, she's just attuned towards one particular thing. This, these, this fashion is just, and this, and not even the fashion, but the actual celebrities that fashion represents. Because, like, these are fashions that have been endorsed, say, by Lindsay Lohan or Audrina Patridge, who... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, don't have any fashion experience aside from the fact that they're famous people who have been, like, reality train wrecks. Right, and that store they keep going in, Kitson, I used to go there all the time. Oh, okay. It's not, which sounds so horrible. Um, (laughs) That was a different time in my life. Uh, Kitson is where I actually saw Lindsay Lohan in there shopping. That's, it's not... It's not a um, fashionable place. It's not a fashionable place at all. It's mm-hmm. like T-shirts that say Hollywood stuff. Yeah, like quotes from famous people, and oh. yeah. So 
what what did you guys think about how uh, the Mark character was handled? He he was our surrogate, and uh, so we're supposed to be seeing a lot of this through his eyes. How successful do you think uh, they were at uh, doing that? Yeah, so I want to do a distinction between the character and the real-life person that he's based on. Mm-hmm. The real-life person is not like the character in the film. The real-life person is... He he's keeps committing crimes. Mm. He keeps doing stuff. He's not like the good old guy that's in the movie where you're supposed to feel empathy for. He's actually not a good person at all. But I I wanted to say I actually so Sophia has in the majority of her films has like a muse. And you said the surrogate character. I couldn't find that person in this film. And maybe that's another reason why I wasn't like crazy, super crazy about it because it's a little bit disjointed at who you're supposed to follow. Yeah, that's so, right. Right. The um yeah. right because you get like sequences with Emma Watson's, but apart from showing her atrocious family attempts at education, <laughs> she's not really an integral part to the schemes. You know, the central person to these schemes is the Rebecca On character. Mm-hmm. But I think you don't. You only get like maybe one moment where she's not in sight of the guy character, you know? So, I mean, that is kind of interesting to me as to why Sofia Coppola decided we're going to follow this guy. When he's in jail, I, are we supposed to feel sad for him? I don't feel anything for him whatsoever. Yeah, I think all that makes this kind of the odd man out in the Sofia Coppola canon. That There's just a lot of ways where I feel like this movie is somehow not like the others, uh, it, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. like yeah, and I think I think though, Brad. Only I'm with you in that. What kind of dooms the film to me is that it's Sophia explicitly condemning them, or or not, or not trying to get into what makes their robberies exciting. In a way that, like, the decadent stuff in Marie Antoinette, you do feel it, you know? You do feel, oh, this is why these things would be fun or enjoyable. Or even the depre- some of the more depressing things in somewhere. You see why a person would be in that environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in this movie, I feel, like, kept at a distance. You know, not in the sense of finger-wagging, but in the sense of, like, just being blandly observational upon that, you know? Mm-hmm. But I do want to say that in the middle of this, there were there's three sequences which I, I swear are flat out brilliant. Just okay. absolute genius level sequences that I gotta mention okay. to you guys and and to you uh, folks listening at home. <laughs> One of which was brought up actually by Brad earlier. It was the scene where they rob a person's house and it's this house on the hills which is encased almost entirely in glass. And so you can almost see it, you can see into almost every room as these two people break in, and it's done from all in a single shot from uh, from a nearby hill that slowly zooms in, and as you look at it, you see these two people rob the different rooms, take different stuff, and want the guy is clearly nervous and he's constantly looking, whereas the woman has purpose and she okay. knows exactly where to go and what to take and what to try to steal and you're seeing it all these different rooms their interactions with each other is all done in like I, I think for like minutes at a time you're watching this as the camera slowly looks on it it's so great at 
It's actually, ironically, that's one of the best shots of informing character, but the character is from such a small distance, which, which fits the theme uh-huh. and the and fits the scope and gives it a, um, pardon the phrase, for Rebecca, fresh perspective, <laughs> because... Up to that point, you were kind of right there with them as they're robbing, as they're breaking into these places. But you treat them as these as what they are: these ants invading this picnic. You know, they're the, just the, how these these dark figures are scurrying around on here, and just really puts out the scope and the pathetic nature of the crimes they do. You know, and to keep that sense of patheticness and and just the sheer perverted opulence of the environment. There's a scene later in the movie where like the different participants of the bling ring are getting arrested and, but they know the cops are arriving and the blonde girl yeah. who we mentioned who was involved in the car crash earlier, she is shown in a really interesting way. Also in a sustained shot, uh-huh. she's sitting at this countertop in the kitchen and Her father is off to the side, just checking out something. Looks like stock reports or whatever on a laptop. Her mother's in the background making making something in the kitchen area. And her younger sister's off on the side. And there's a weird-looking dog hanging around by the Uh father. And very, very faintly, but getting ever slightly louder, you hear these sirens coming in the distance. And it's zooming in. You see the whole family's existence, but it's held there. And you can really draw in, well, if this is the environment, my God, stealing stealing shoes that have um, uh, Lindsay Lohan's name on them. Well, I guess that's something to do, right? But the best, the best is that court scene. When they go to court, it's filmed from the hallway. Mm-hmm. The defendants get in the courtroom. And then you see the doors close. And they immediately open okay. again. That is so brilliant because what in this that society presented in the movie, why should anyone care what happens? The doors are closed. The cameras and the reporters and the Instagrams can't get in. So who cares? Right. Also, we're saved from another cliche courtroom uh, drama. <laughs> but the point that the movie makes by making it such a cut is that, yes, in this world actual concepts of justice or fairness or law they're be they're completely irrelevant it's when the cameras are on in this world that you should care mm-hmm. when the cameras are on they can show things in slow motion now it's your turn to present yourself to to show how outrageous you can be and how many clicks you can get or likes you can get you know but but if there's no cameras then pfft, Forget it. And it's all, so all this sense, this whole sensibility is done through the cut of an instant. And was like, that was pretty damn brilliant, Sofia Coppola, mm-hmm. you know? So what better way to follow up the bling ring than making some sort of Netflix Bill Murray Christmas special? <laughs> What's going on with that? A very Murray Christmas, probably uh, as aptly titles, titled as it can be, because it's got Bill Murray's particular um, sincerity issues, uh, where you never quite uh-huh. know if he's kidding or not, or to what extent. So the the thing that, that I find kind of interesting uh, about this is 
is it a sly takedown <laughs> of the old-timey Christmas special, or is it actually an old-timey Christmas special filled with songs and sets and dream sequences and whatnot? It reminds me of this Simpsons episode, which they were doing a parody of Lollapalooza, where two guys are watching a show, and one of the guys says, Awesome concert, man! To which his friend says, Are you being sarcastic, dude? And the first one replies, I don't even know anymore. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I, um... Okay, so I'll set the scene a bit. So, he's really sad because he can't go anywhere for Christmas, and there's, like, a blizzard, so he's stuck. He can't go anywhere. They're filming Mm -hmm. the special, but none of them want to do it, so I think they cancel the special. Well, the the weather actually forces the satellite out. Right, so they can't do the special, but now he's stuck, so he's in, like, a bar with a lot of people, and then they all are, like, kind of Christmassy, and he, they do some songs, right? Oh, it's full of songs. Yeah, They do nothing but songs. Right, right. (laughs) My God, it's full of songs. So I really enjoyed that part where he was in the bar and interacting with everyone, like Jason Schwartzman, Rashida Jones. Like, it was a a good group. And then he, like, falls asleep somewhere. Is it in the bar or is it in the room? Yeah, he gets drunk and passes out. Yeah, Yeah. so Mm -hmm. then he, like, has a dream with George Clooney and Miley Cyrus and... It's really stupid. Or at least I thought it was really stupid. I, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. Yeah. yeah. And what you'll either find charming or not charming is is Bill Murray's singing throughout. Mm-hmm. Bill Murray can't really sing, but we love Bill Spoiler Murray. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> we love Bill Murray anyway. We love you. We kind of give him a pass that he can't uh-huh. sing. Uh-huh. And the whole thing's kind of just all right. Yes. Yep. <laughs> But after that, Sophia takes a look back into the past with her film The Beguiled in 2017, which features a boarding school in Virginia during the Civil War, which takes in a wounded Yankee to heal there, but he has different effects on the women and girls that leads to a spiraling set of increasing complications there. Yeah, so... um just a note to kind of compare it a little bit to the other films, The Beguiled and Virgin Suicides. There's a lot mm-hmm. of connections there. The Beguiled, the difference is it's like a range of ages. Like you have Nicole Kimmon, who's kind of the hierarchy of everyone, and then you got Kirsten Dunst, who's the assistant, and then you've got a bunch of younger girls that would probably range from 12 to 18. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just teenagers, which is, I guess, a difference from virgin suicides, but to focus on the beguiled, it's, it's very, um, understated. I don't know if you guys noticed the, the lighting was very dim, like, like it was during civil war times. But gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous. And they're in like a real, like old house from that time. Side note. 
they filmed uh, the Beyonce lemonade video there when they oh. were doing like the civil or the slavery stuff. Oh, which wow! Is, which is ironic, but that was just a side note. But there's so many beautiful shots um, in, in terms of like when they're outside, they're all wearing white dresses and they all kind of fade into the trees. You know, with the dinner table scenes, it's it's a beautiful film. And the difference between Marie Antoinette and this one is that it it is true to that time. Um, and it's not like there's any rock star music. Like, it's, it's like, pretty much quiet most of the time. And then there's, like, a score of music at the end. One of the things I really liked about this film is how it made me appreciate what Coppola is doing on sound design sense, not a musical sense, but there's a way she's able to use this approaching, say, a threat by hearing occasionally sounds of cannon fire or sounds of musket mm-hmm. fire. Mm-hmm. And at different moments when the girls are outside, the buzzing of the animals, like the cr- like crickets and, and, and birds, are like just become more and more drawn out to lend this sense of this kind of frantic quality to mm-hmm. to it but it, yeah but it's not done through songs it's done through sound yes and you were mentioning the virgin suicide comparison and uh after i think uh excursions into reality sofia coppola is back into a dreamy way of mm-hmm. of filming things which in this case is through just uh, a wonderful uh, take on the environment of the old uh, southern plantation mm-hmm. in the uh, New Orleans area and the the way uh, the sun shines through the trees are almost yeah. uh, Malick-like in a lot of ways. It, it, yes. it, she very meticulously sets up the environment that the action's going to take place in. And the pacing for the first part of the film is really well done. We get to know all the characters, Mm -hmm. you know, in different ways. And then we get to know them as uh, the women and the girls in the boarding school. And then how each of them interacts differently with the Colin Farrell character when he's introduced. This movie is a slow build, but you're you're not bored. Like stuff is going on. I I do like how they all interact with the corporal in different ways mm-hmm. and how it kind of builds up as to that dinner table scene. Nicole Kimmons character, uh, Miss Martha, she's she's so sly about it. In the sense, like, she puts on a face for the girls, and then, you know, that she's like, you want to have a drink with me? And, you know, I think my favorite character in this film is Kirsten Dunn's character. Mm-hmm. Because this is the first time I've seen her not as the pretty girl. Like, she definitely has more of a plainish look to her. Maybe a little overweight, actually. I don't know. Mm. Um, but there's this one shot where you just... I don't know if she's with the corporal looking at the corporal out the window, but you see her her face just still, and you see it's kind of like a silhouette, and you see like kind of she's her chin is kind of double chin, so it's not a attractive thing about her, but you still are drawn to her. She's still got this 
Um, she's very, uh, very stoic. Um, you could tell she hates everyone there. She just wants to get out, but she's she's putting on a face. I completely agree with you, Rebecca, that that dinner table sequence is an, a great example of showing what Sofia Coppola can do so well, which is showing these different ways that each girl individually behaves differently towards Colin Farrell's McBurney character mm-hmm. and also how the fashion and how you dress and how how you like how you eat your food hold your fork it's all there to give this meaning if you just pay attention and you just notice and the film honors that level of attention you know the other aspect of this uh, movie that I liked is kind of Colin Farrell's uh, mm-hmm. character's strategy in how to handle this situation. Uh, he, he's injured, he's in hostile territory, and, and what he has is his charm. And so he yes. assesses each of the women. The beguiled. And, uh, exactly, and decides what is it th- that each of these women want from me that will help me survive and achieve my goals. And he uses his wits and, and his charm up to a certain point where he makes uh, some uh, errors. errors. But but I think it's also interesting to, to contrast <laughs> this to the film that this is a remake of. Uh, the, the Beguiled was also a 1971 Clint Eastwood film uh, directed by Don Siegel. And it's a little more in the exploitation mode. It, it's a well done in that mode, but it, it's much more about uh, here's a man trapped in a, uh, trapped with all these beautiful women and will he have his way or will they have his revenge, their revenge? And it, 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 it's a lot mm. uh, seedier. Sounds and like Clint, a Ken Russell movie. You no, know, more like a Clint Eastwood movie because mm. Clint kind of gets by on his... Uh, you know, manly Charles. Clintonness, uh, yeah, but but nice it's it, it, it's more interesting to me, and I think I think Sofia Coppola's made a made a better film because even though Colin Farrell is is attractive to all the women, uh, you, you still get much more of a sense of you know his internal uh, process and what he's thinking, which helps uh, build the suspense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like. Not just like the different perspectives that Colin Farrell's McBurney character uses on the different girls, but I also like that the movie itself has a shifting kind of perspective. You know, you know, guys, how like sometimes when you're listening out to the radio, you sometimes get to a, um, a frequency where you can halfway hear one station and halfway hear the other mm-hmm. and then you slowly fiddle the dial and you can somehow make out somehow make out one kind of music or another kind of music that's how i feel the movie does about his perspective at times has you think that he is a manipulator that he is a person who is going to adjust for each person like change his demeanor change what kind of things he thinks will appeal to each woman or girl as a matter of survival. Mm-hmm. He's just a guy who wants to get better and and get out of a dire situation. Yeah. At times, though, you get an impression that he's doing this stuff, but in a kind of malevolent way. Like, you feel that, like, he's a threat. That he's an active threat towards these ladies and their situation. 
And at times, he actually comes across as, hey, a poor schmuck who's, you know, he's in a bad situation, and you feel for him. At least I felt for him. I think that's because uh, Coppola's uh, shifting points of view on us throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is not content to, as in the original, just provide uh, the soldier's point of view. Here, she's also providing the point of view of the women in the household, Mm -hmm. who are all coming from different places. So, uh, like the virgin suicides, she manages to Take show. on what what might be yeah show what might be uh, incompatible points of view to us at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting! Yeah. I didn't actually take it as as like that kind of formal way. You know, like you can probably formally say when Colin Farrell is presented in a certain way that you know as an audience member, oh, this is how Kirsten Dunst, Edwina character, sees him. You know, or this is how. Um, Nicole Kidman's character sees him. I don't. I don't find the movie as formal as that. Right. But I still find it interesting that at different points you're left wondering how should I, as an audience member, look at his motives. I think it's because it's doing it more subtly. It very well could be doing that. There's actually a character I think we should talk about. Uh, I think her character name is Amy. She's Mm -hmm. the one who finds Colin Farrell. Mm -hmm. She's the one looking for mushrooms. And her real name's like Una something. But I think her role is... As crucial as the you know Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. Kirsten Dunst, um, Al Fanning, because she's like the one who becomes the friend to him. She's the one that brings him to the house. Yeah. And in terms of him changing his mode for all the different characters, she's the friend. He she's the buddy. I think she looks at him like not maybe a father but maybe like a big brother Mm -hmm. like somebody who could look out for her Mm -hmm. and i don't feel like all the girls trust each other (laughs) i feel like when he comes in they automatically trust him except for that one girl who's like you know send him out there i forget her name but but um everybody else is like immediately like we want to help you but i think that one girl amy she's gonna be a rising star just, just like um, Kirsten Dunst and Al Fanning. Oh, okay. Um, she's she really stood out. I feel there's an interesting point to her character, Rebecca, and that ties into how she was looking for mushrooms and looking, and then finds McBurney. But she is responsible for finding the mushrooms used to poison him at the yes, end because he has made sh- things really, really tense for this. Right, school. right. We should step a little back, though, with our spoilers just because there's kind of a, a sequence of events, mm-hmm. you could say. Right, so, what, right. What leads up to that? Yeah, so we have all that lead up, you know, with the girls interacting with the corporal, and then you mention the dinner table. Yes. When they invite him to dinner for the first time. I think it's because he's leaving. Supposed to leave. Like, it's like yeah, it's healed. Is healed enough. Yeah, so yeah. he's leaving. So they're like, we might as well just have him for dinner. And then everybody's dressed in their nicest dresses. You know, wearing jewelry. Um, you know, Nicole Kidman's character, Miss Martha, speaking French. Like, it's just all chill. And they're eating apple pie. And they can't stop talking about how they love apple pie. Mm-hmm. It's just so funny. And then, you know, Elle Fanning's like, I made it. And then Kirsten Dunst is like, well, didn't I give you the recipe? And, like, they're all a little, like, yeah. competing for what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you could tell everybody's kind of, like... 
really at a good point. Like this lead up has brought them to a point before an explosion. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz you know, he's leaving and Kirsten Dunst's character she's convinced that he loves her. So they're going to go away together. But since she knows that he's leaving soon, she decides she's going to surprise him with like lingerie or whatever going to his room. When she goes to the room, she doesn't find him. Al Fanning's character is very flirtatious and very um, self-absorbed and flirty the whole time with the corporal. So she finds the corporal in Alpha Fanning's character's room. And then that's when shit gets real. That's mm-hmm. when Kirsten Dunst is, like, pissed. And she, like, throws him down the stairs. And I'll let you guys take it from right, there. Right, because the movie not only changes tones plot-wise, but it changes tones in the way it's being filmed. Because it then really turns into a thriller... It weakens a bit in the second part from the first part because that very um, methodical pace that had been set up is all of a sudden in one scene kind of thrown out the window because we get to the, the soldier being pushed down the stairs to his injury to them amputating his leg yeah. to his shock horror and then him turning into a menacing threat as a result of that, all in a very quick set of scenes Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. really contrast with how uh, everything had been set up up to this point. Obviously, if you wake up to discover your leg is cut off, you are going to be quite upset. Uh uh But But I felt there needed to be some build to the point where he discovers this and wakes up to him becoming completely psychotic. Yeah, so I I just want to say I disagree. Um, yeah. I think the pacing's perfect in terms of, like, slow build-up and then a quick reaction. Um, that was perfect for me. Okay. okay. And I will split the difference by saying you're both wrong. No, I, I will go and I'll go and split the difference in saying that I actually do not have an issue on the pacing side because I actually I'm with you, Rebecca, in that it should be more frantic when such a operation has been performed on you. They call and it, it should... the climax in scripts, right? Mm-hmm. And like when something like that is befalls you, it's meant to be frantic. It's meant to be like. Very, very intense. However, to Brad's point, it then shifts to not just showing him as, like, say, an opportunistic guy or as a malevolent guy, but into a straight-up horror movie boogeyman. And that part I do not like or appreciate because that's just lends it to a level that the movie wasn't even trying to do, you know? There's ways of making this kind of southern gothic, I think, is how you describe it, right? Mm -hmm. When you say, oh, it's like this grand kind of horrific imagery, but the movie's not been trafficking or even hinting at something like that. That's kind of what I was getting at before, is that if more development had happened in that time, then I think... Uh, you and I would have bought yes. the the, if the, house the, was the horror elements more easily. Right. If the house looked a little more strange, if Nicole Kidman's character was a little more oppressive, if they cut to a couple more shots of like them really liking how to use the saw <laughs> or, or sewing, there's ways to like set something up to 
ha- put yourself in a horror kind of environment, and I don't feel that uh, Coppola did that here. Yeah, I feel like this isn't necessarily a horror movie. I feel like it's a fairy tale, like a <gasps> scary okay. fairy tale. It, and, okay. and um, so the the end part. It's it's tragic, and a lot a lot of stuff happens at once. You're mm-hmm. right; it does happen quite fast. But in terms of him turning, I it makes sense to me because he lost his leg, and he trusted these. Well, then you got to ask yourself: Who is the beguiled? Who's beguiling mm-hmm. who? Yes, because there's a. You know, it seemed to be he was the guy, and then all of a sudden, you know, they were... She cut the leg off, which uh, I think maybe was the best decision, but she should have asked him first. Um, <laughs> well, but he was unconscious and exactly. was going to die That's if she didn't. Right, exactly. So she made a decision, a good decision. But I wanted to bring it to the end. Um, well, obviously, the mushroom scene is is very uh, interesting. But I think that last shot is brilliant in hmm. terms of them sewing. Spoils. He dies. They're sewing his coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the gate. And you pan back. Yeah. And you just seeing them at the gate, like, kind of frozen. Yeah. And, like, some kind of painting. Um, and I think that last scene just says it all. Hmm. I find it a really striking image, but I don't quite know what to make of it. Because, obviously, you can take it as, like, these women are trapped in their environment. But it seems to me the movie's doing a whole lot more than that. So, when you say it's saying it all, what, what stuff are you well, getting out of that image? <laughs> So in terms of trapped in their environment, that that is a tragic part. But you know how Sophia's more show than tell. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like they just go back into their old ways. Okay. Um, in terms of like Kirsten Dunst, you know, uh, yeah. she had no idea. She did not get a say in the mushrooms, mm-hmm. but for obvious reasons. That's a really great point um, because because she doesn't show her running off. She even her des- her desires clearly there, and and certainly all the stuff that's befallen her in the course of the movie, she had every reason to try to run off. Well, but yeah, but they, here's the. Oh, with him. With him, but yeah, now she's there's she no exit. She can't leave on her yeah. own. I mean, she's it's the Civil War time, and yeah. she's a lady, and they're just soldiers out there. It's no good for a female out in the wild, which is too bad. But yeah, so right, so for them there is no exit. So if I think the film lost its way just a bit when Colin Farrell became a threat, I think it it recovers once. He, the final uh, dinner scene begins and, and the mushroom because uh, the way that's choreographed as the the last of a number yeah. of dinner scenes is just really well done mm-hmm. as various characters know things that other characters don't and you know you're always looking for the kind of cliche way for him to, for it to be yeah uh undone and for him to get out of it and it never happens and then there's this amazing shot where you kind of see Nicole Kidman yes. uh from a different point of view than you've seen her before where there there's a, there's a coldness about her and, and and it's just kind of she has her helped. arms outstretched right. like she's the head witch at a coven mm-hmm. and she has her 
her brood is all around her and she's totally holding court, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, so again, point points of view. Now, you yeah. know, a character we identified with can be looked at as more of a threat. Right, right. Yes. I would like to talk about the sex scene because mm-hmm. I think that scene tells a lot. So, you know, she, she kind of runs off from the girls and they decided, Kirsten and Colin, that they were not going to kiss. Like, it was going to be, like, savage, like, mm. just banging. Um, so it was not going to be intimate in any way. It's just mm. kind of, like, angry shit, you know? Yeah. Um, so that scene, as we were talking about previously, correlates a little bit to the virgin suicide scene on the um, football field. Yeah. Like, if you do a shot-by-shot, it's, like, the same, maybe not They're in the savage. same position same position yeah but not as savage but i i i love that scene um because it it shows that she's just gone out of her stoicness i guess you would say and she just is like you see that she has a fire in her like she she wants and you don't see that really in many of the other girls i mean yeah Elle fanning's character is a little flirty and then nicole kimman gets a little bossy but you don't see that fire really in a, anyone else. Yeah. Um, so again, I think I I'm drawn most to Kirsten. Right. And it's a moment of release. Only... It's a moment of release, and not just a carnal one for Kirsten. Right. It's all like it's a complete letting go of all the stuff that makes you more aware of how much stuff she has had repressed by mm-hmm. how violent that like um, that scene is shown. And right. she's the only character that actually falls in love with him. The other right. characters may have varying degrees of desire or affection for him, but due to his manip- manipulations, she's the one that falls in love, which makes her the one that causes him the most danger. Which, That's a uh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> that That's- is a good point. This movie, for me, is not about the corporal. It's about the women that are in the house. And it's about how they stand together, even if they don't want to. You know, and it's like the way they interacted when the man came in, and then the way they came together when he was gone. Yeah, to me, this was very much a return to form for Sofia Coppola. I thought, uh, aside from a few bits that didn't work uh it's worked better than uh most of her recent films and 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 i think the switching perspectives thing is a big strength of hers and and one and one that helped this film develop character wise while her now sizable experience as a director has you know given us a very visual rich palette in which uh, to enjoy all these performances and situations. What we think then of, of Sofia Coppola's work, now that we've had this chance to like give a look of her films all the way through. Yeah, uh, I have to say, watching them back to back, really I saw themes. Like, I mean, I knew that the teenager stuff and the youth and the loneliness were common themes in the film. But it's interesting, when you watch a movie back-to-back from the same director, you start seeing commonalities in terms of like how they shoot the films, like scenes that kind of coincide with other scenes. I almost want to do the, one of those side-by-side things mm-hmm. with, with uh, Virgin Suicides and The Beguiled, like, you know, um, 
like on Vimeo, you know, just like certain scenes that are like the same uh-huh. when they come mm-hmm. in. Um, also, music, something that I noticed more this time, just the placement and how the music was used to elevate the film. Um, cinematography has always been her best, I feel. I mean, her scripts are good too, but what I think is her highest form is the way she shoots things and the way she takes her time. Like, she doesn't just, like, skirt from shot to shot to shot. Like, something I noticed about Christopher Nolan's movies, I they're too quick for me. Like, in terms, like, they're too, like, cut, 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 cut. And I, I like Christopher Nolan, but in terms of taste, I think I prefer the, the wandering, meandering on a certain shot. You know, kind of getting yourself absorbed into the environment that you're at. So... That's one of my favorite things I've found drawn out when I've seen Sofia Coppola's work watched in totality. I want her to slow down even further Mm -hmm. because I think she's really, really good at capturing these certain moods and these certain moments. Mm -hmm. And I find that at least in the shots where she has composed a shot and she holds on to it, it's something that I've always found rewarding the more I look onto mm-hmm. it. And and even Im- the three images I described in The Bling Ring, a movie I don't particularly care for, are just going to stay with me because they just get such a great impression and a great meaning mm-hmm. just all by themselves. Right. Her, her visual sense is always there. Uh, e- even in her least films, she's still got this style that is is uniquely hers and and i think uh you know of all the things that i i've enjoyed about uh the various films it's really seeing this kind of you know consistency of a director knowing exactly the kind of movies she wants to Mm -hmm. make Mm -hmm. and who is empowered to make them right exactly and i another thing her female characters are maybe even a little stronger than her male characters, but her male character no, 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 because you think of Bill Murray and Stephen Dorff. She, she has fully formed characters, male and female, mm-hmm. and whatever her muse or star usually rides to the top, except for Bling Ring being the exception. Um, but I think she thinks of her characters kind of like paintings, like parts in a painting that's going to fit into the whole masterpiece of her work um it's not like just the character and everything else is on the side it it all like sinks together and it's a beautiful thing so yeah i think that's really well put she manages to just compose it through character and visuals and sound and make it all work of a piece that fits as a single kind of unit you know sometimes when you hear a song, for example, played at a really high level, You, the mere notes and chords and instruments fall away, and you just get a feeling on pure sensation through the music. Mm-hmm. And this is something she is, I think, able and has, has been able to bring about through her like uh, film techniques. Mm-hmm. And now... What are you? Do you guys know what she's going to be up to next, or what you guys would like to do? Is 
there a Jimmy Fallon Hanukkah special in her future? Did you want to say something? Uh, no, because okay. I, I don't know what's next. Okay. Sorry, I thought you were going to say something else. Um, what's next? Well, I heard The Little Mermaid's next. And she also recently directed an opera. Hmm. So oh, okay. That's like a new thing. I, I think they filmed it and everything, so I'm sure that's going to hit up theaters. Um, but she's going to do a Disney film. The Little Mermaid. That's fascinating because she is among the most unrestricted directors, how she'll be able to work with uh, a restricted format like that. Yeah, I, I wish her all the best, but I have a feeling she will Marie pull Antoinette. a... Marie Antoinette Well, hopefully she won't get the Marie Antoinette treatment, <laughs> but I kind of feel that she'll give at least the same treatment that Darren Aronofsky did, where Aronofsky has left many, many projects because they kept trying to compromise the vision he wanted, and he just wasn't having like it. Like Noah you know? or whatever? He was um, Noah, and they messed with... He was supposed to do... Um, a RoboCop movie. He was supposed to do one of the Batman films and so on and so forth, and he just kept leaving the projects well, because they would try changing it on him. Yeah, I mean, something with Sofia Coppola, she's very true to the adaption. So I feel like she would kind of do, like, a, I hate to say it, a bling ring or um, what other thing? Virgin Suicides. Like, she would kind of... I mean, Virgin Suicides is based on great literature, but she was true to that adaption. Yeah, so, and... You, so you're saying she will go to the roots of the, um, I think, Hans Christian Andersen story from The Little Mermaid? Maybe, as opposed to like, the Disney treatment well, of it? Well, she did a fairy tale version of The Beguiled. I mean, I feel. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. No, she'd be able to get into a fairy tale environment, which I think would exist kind of somewhere between the Disney fairy tale environment and the grim fairy tales when you <laughs> actually see what those tales are about, right, you know? And, right. And actually... I think, like, a, a lot of Hans Christian Andersen's um, fairy tales do have this real sense of melancholy and loss to it. Something where if the fates are all aligned and she's willing to make, able to, and willing and able to make the movie that she wants to make, if she can bring about that feeling of those old tales and not have a bunch of bean counters trying to sell action figures standing in the way. Yeah. That uh, that would be really great. I, I wish the best for her chances on something yeah, like that. Yeah, I kind of like to see her make a film in Paris because she lives in Paris. And I thought I think since she's been there long enough, she should have some insight. Um, and, you know, I think if I was going to see any film do in Paris, I, you know, Sophia, I know, would do an awesome job. I want to run a question by you guys on this, which is that if you guys had a particular shot or a sequence in a Sofia Coppola movie, That's what would favorite. be your what would be your favorite? I'll, I'll go list mine first. Yeah, you go and, first. And well, I I would don't want to cheat and say seventy five percent of somewhere, <laughs> but I do have one, okay. and it's it comes across to me like just like a. a it's like a, a tidal wave. Every single time I see when Scarlett Johansson is traveling in the city and the, in Tokyo in Lost in Translation and as she's staring out the window looking at the skyline and the, all the lights are moving and scrolling and reflected across her face. And this super powerful song 
by My Bloody Valentine called Sometimes. It's all playing on the soundtrack. And, mm-hmm. and oh, good Lord, the, the sound and the visuals, and I love... I love every atom of it. Every 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 light that crosses her face, the upward tilt of her chin, like the curve of the glass is nice. just. It's. I mean, it's all like burned into my memory on there, and yet I will never stop being happy every time I see that shot. So that's that's it for me. That's great. <laughs> I'll pick a shot near the end of of Virgin Suicides, actually right before uh, the suicides are discovered. And the boys uh, fantasize about uh, taking the girls away. They've planned yeah. to all get away in, in their car. And so we see this uh, potential future where they're all in the car. Oh, yeah, right, in right. Kind of this full, uh, full innocent optimism while we're about to find out that. Uh, it will be unjustified, but for just uh, for just those uh, few moments, it's it's a wonderful uh, scene of bliss that I really enjoyed. Yeah, that is a really good that is a really good scene showing it, and I have to say I do like the cut as well because because the movies has set it up nicely, so you think well maybe maybe they maybe they do get there. Oh no, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I'm gonna say more than one. Cool. Sure. Is that okay? All right. Um, I'm going to do each film. Okay. So, Virgin... Oh, wait. Lick the Star Eye. The eyeliner one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Virgin Suicides, when they're all in that field, like all dreamy. Um, yeah. Lost in Translation karaoke part oh my god we didn't yeah. even bring that we didn't even bring that up yeah did we, not? We, we did it okay so yeah that's a killer scene yeah um, especially with the pink wig and like yes. just them like singing mm. and all that yeah um then marie antoinette i would say when she's in the field and she's wearing the white dress and she's with her daughter i i like that um next one help um somewhere Somewhere, I would say I like that opening scene and end, so I'm just going to combine those two. Mm-hmm. And Bling Ring, same with the house, like the, the outside. Yeah. Where you could see them running around the house. Um, very Merry Christmas. <laughs> Antlers on Bill Murray's head. Um, oh. the, the beguiled... Um, scene where they're walking outside and they kind of like fade into the trees... That's mm-hmm. that's very um, cinematically amazing. I feel mm-hmm. um, so. That's it. Nice, yeah. And obviously, Sofia Coppola, even in, through her like sh- short career up to this point of films, has given many many images for mm-hmm. people to uh, and many moments for people to go and appre- uh, appreciate and check out and explore and re-explore. So I'm so Rebecca. I'm super super glad you were able to oh, join thank us you. for this I'm, and and help us with our exploration on this is great on her and her films. And I mean, it was it's so cool to be able to hear your perspective on these movies, which I've like found like led me to look at them again the next time mm-hmm. I see them in really interesting new ways. Yeah, thank you. 
Now, where can people hear oh, yes. or read more okay. about what you've been, what so, you're up to? So I'm just gonna lay it out. Um, my podcast on the Now Playing Network is called Fresh. Pers- Wait, I talked about. Well, you you could find Fresh Perspective on the Now Playing Network, and that's nowplayingnetwork.net/slash/freshperspective, and you could follow Fresh Perspective on Twitter at fp. Podcast 312 and then um, Film Punch. You could find us on Twitter at Film Punch Meetup and YouTube. Stay tuned. Um, follow me on my personal Twitter at Eb E B B Cinema Flow. So, like Eb and Flow, but cinema's in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, that's where you actually should just go for everything. So, forget all the other Twitters. Just go to Eb, Eb Cinema Flow. So, well, yeah. Rebecca, we've really enjoyed having you on the show, and we certainly welcome feedback. Uh, and so, please feel free to email us at Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your take on what we're doing here, suggestions for other directors, and any random comments you may have. And you can find our podcasts online at iTunes over at Directors Club Podcast. And our episodes are also available on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. We are also Directors Club Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And if you like what we've said here, uh, check out some of the other awesome movie discussions and movie podcasts that are going on on the now playing network Mm -hmm. uh thanks for listening guys and uh stay tuned out on for another episode of the director's club thanks for listening thanks for listening thank you Yeah, I, I think I liked it better the third time I saw it, Bling Ring. But there's still some, you know. So you like the movie? I like it, but I also there's some flaws with it as well. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think my flaw with this podcast is I'm going to come across like liking the movie way more than I do. This <laughs> <laughs> is like these three scenes are awesome. I'm like. There was a the, the, this a director uh, Howard Hawks who is saying um, who had probably one of the stupidest like <laughs> sayings that kind of sounds true until you realize it's total bullshit yeah. since lightning never strikes twice in the same place he should you know a great movie should have three great scenes and no bad scenes that sounds funny <laughs> yeah yeah and which is totally not completely not true and um and I mean, I think of, I think if a movie achieves greatness, if it, it can have a number of bad scenes, you know, right, right. But uh, but under that rubric, Bling Ring could almost qualify because those three sequences I said are uh, straight up great. Yeah. Uh, no, go on, what? I I was skeptical about whether you could look up somebody's address. Oh. So I tried. I, I tried to look up an address. I uh-huh. wanted to do someone I wasn't embarrassed too embarrassed about, and someone who probably hadn't seen the Bling Ring. Yeah. So I looked up Tim Conway's address. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Hey, 
<laughs> right, so we're going to go later and rob that Harvey Corbin statue he has there, right? <laughs> and, like, and, it, and, it, and it did. It had his address with the numbers crossed out. Oh, did it? Oh, okay, well, there you go. There, there you go. Did it have a Google uh, like Earth picture of like him on the rooftop going, "Please visit me." <laughs> Watch. Go, go to dwarf.com. Oh uh, no, no. Then you'd go to Stephen Dorf's website. <laughs> all right. Are we? Are we all set? Murray. Okay. Okay. Murray. That's made a Neil Simon reference Murray there. Murray Christmas. Right?